describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. that in a second morning good afternoon good evening welcome to grog talk i'm james and i'm dan so dan where are we from today dan i told you not to ask me that we're not anywhere oh okay. well we're back home we're, Yay, we're back home we're back home because we don't have a convention to go to but let me but i'm very excited to tell you huh? where we will be from next time next time we're going to be from we're going to be at origins Okay. Do you remember Origins, the convention? Oh, do they still have Origins? Uh, I don't know. Origins was, I believe it started as Avon Hills Wargaming Convention. I bet you our guest today will know all about Origins. It probably still exists. So we're back home. We got a, a respite before getting back on the road and being live from a 1982 convention. Very nice, very nice. I'm still having a mic issue. And so, they can't hear you? It's yeah. just me? Just you. Ah, uh-huh. James, you're terrible. You're awful. It's your show, so I gotta fix that. All right. Well, today we're gonna be talking about gnomes. Uh, so. I wrote a theme song. I love gnomes. It, it's, I, I do remember that, though I wasn't sure if you were serious or trying to make fun of gnomes. Yes. So, what we're gonna do this, I've prepared for something like this to happen. And of course, what I'll do then is I'm gonna be reading from the great. The great Roger Moore's The Gnomish Point of View. Okay. The Gnomish Point of View by Roger Moore. Just tell me when, shut up. Gnomes are small demi-human, closely, demi-humans closely related to dwarves. They average, they can't hear you, James. They, they can't hear La, la, la. They can't hear you. <laughs> Technical difficulties. <laughs> Stop the show. <laughs> Why are we losing viewers? We're down to five. Six to five. We're not even at our average 12. Oh, okay. They average about three foot six inches in height. Three foot six. Okay, I'm back. Yeah, that's Boo. 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 Boo wrong. Boo. Bring back the gnomish point of view. Yeah. All right. So, anyhow, the short version is our other mics 
stopped working, so I had to use our old mics. And of course, the old mics decided not to work properly. So, yeah, that's the joys of all, day, all the time. Huh? All Dan, all the time. Yes, right. that's right. So, anyway, we're struggling with that. But today we have a great show, assuming we can get through the technical nonsense. Okay, good. It's working. Uh, we are going to have my car in at 10 o'clock. That's going to be very exciting. Very nice golf clap. So, we're very excited about having him on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's talk about the various nonsense that we have um, besides gnomes. Uh, well, if Roger Moore does listen, if he's one of the th- three people who are out there that hasn't chatted, we'd love to have him at GrogCon, right? Oh, that'd be incredible. We, we would pay for him to come to GrogCon. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, we would. With like a profit. No, right. I didn't say that. I'm a terrible negotiator. <laughs> no, Shut up, Dan. Boosh. <laughs> I'm going to mute you again. I, James is like, I told you not to say that. Exactly. Exactly. I got to fix the camera now. Did you monkey with the camera? Well, sort of. Okay, now you're going to make me fix the camera too. Okay, hold on. Let me fix the camera. Do we start over? No, we're not starting over. This is, this is people, exp- this is what makes our uh, show uh, endearing. endearing. That's our thing. That's right. But Dan, why don't you introduce our guest? Okay, so we are very pleased to have as a guest on the show today, Mike Carr who worked for TSR during its golden age from 1976 to 1983. So welcome to the show, Mike. Okay, so, so you're, you're playing uh, miniatures uh, and board games with, with Dave Wesley and Dave Arneson. And so you were, of course, then you were there at that, sounds like at the point in time in which Wesley then sort of creates this concept of role-playing with Bronstein, and then Dave Arneson uh, turns it into what ultimately becomes D&D with Blackmore. Yeah, there was a number of things going on. As I mentioned, we were board gamers, and when we met Dave Arneson and his group, uh, we were exposed to miniatures. Of course, you can't just play miniatures unless you have a lot of miniatures, and he and uh, his group of people had uh, a lot of Napoleonic-era miniatures, and that's... uh, what kind of broadened our horizons. And there was a lot of activity going on. One of the miniatures games that we played uh, was called Modern Worn Miniature by Michael Corns. That's Corns, K-O-R-N-S. Um, and that particular game is a World War II uh, man-to-man um, infantry action. Uh, it moves very slowly. Each turn is two or four seconds, something like that. And we had played that, and that kind of allowed us to uh, get the individual feel for that sort of thing. It wasn't true role-playing. It was more military miniatures, but that was part of the mix as well. And um, when Dave Wesley conceived of this uh, Braunstein game, um, that was one of really, I think, uh, really the genesis of role-playing from a gaming standpoint. And there were a number of uh, versions of that. As you mentioned, there was Brownstone and... Uh, I think he calls it Banania, which is Banana Republic right. version, where individual players uh, are given roles to play uh, in a very freeform uh, way. The The manner of play is freeform, but the setting is created by the game master. And, of course, that was a relatively new concept uh, at that time. We were each given roles to play, and uh, then there was a lot of interaction, which kind of played off the Diplomacy board game, which was also one of the predecessors. And in the diplomacy board game, there's a lot of interaction between the players negotiating and uh, 
deciding what to do in concert or um, against each other and so on. So that uh, verbal part of that game you know, was easily carried over into Wesley's creation. But I'm convinced that that was really the genesis of, of role-playing right there. And, and Dave Wesley, I think, deserves more credit than he's gotten um, you know, really as the father of role-playing gaming. Did you get a sense that it was something very different when, when he was doing that? Uh, yes, and uh, it was all pretty informal um, at the time. I want to preface this by saying uh, that the gaming milieu in Minneapolis-St. Paul in those days, and by this by, old, by those days, I would mean probably 1966, 67, 68, 69, was incredibly diverse and rich. There were probably 20 to 30 or maybe a handful more individuals uh, participating in the gaming scene. And it was interesting. And in years later, um, we found out that at that time, we didn't realize it, but that was probably the largest uh, active gaming community in the world. We had always thought that uh, England was really the hotbed of gaming. Don Featherstone had published some books on uh, miniatures gaming and that sort of thing. So that gave uh, the impression to everyone else that there was a real active scene there. But uh, the story is told, and this is third hand at this point, Ross Maker from the Twin Cities went over and met Don Featherstone, and uh, he enjoyed that, but he was uh, surprised that uh, you know the number of active gamers over there was considerably smaller than what we had going in the Twin Cities. So uh, that whole Twin Cities gaming scene was just a potpourri of activity and different kinds of games. We were playing naval miniatures, Napoleonic miniatures, uh, diplomacy, other board games, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So um, I guess it's no surprise that uh, role playing came out of that uh, uh, mixing pot, so to speak, of of activities. And and Gary Gygax was involved to an extent in that, wasn't he? Uh, peripherally, yes. Uh, Dave Arneson uh, got a degree in uh, history from University of Minnesota, and. His specialty was Napoleonic history. So Dave Arneson, among numerous other activities, created, conceived, and uh, executed uh, a massive Napoleonic-era campaign, which was based off the diplomacy game uh, at the strategic highest level. And in diplomacy, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with that, it's a map of Europe, and you have fleets and armies, and you move them from province to province. You're trying to take uh, supply centers and conquer Europe. Uh, by moving your fleets and armies. So that's on kind of the grand strategic level. Uh, that concept was carried forward in Artisan's campaign with individual nations uh, controlled by individual gamers. And uh, the largest countries like England and Russia had two players running the country. And all the others uh, were individuals uh, who, through Dave Arneson, would create a budget. Uh, you'd have a certain amount of uh, income that you're um, country produced, depending on how many provinces you had and the richness of those provinces. And then you would spend that uh, income that you were given uh, to create fleets and armies. Um, you know, a regiment of, of hussars would cost uh, so much. Uh, lancers would be a little less expensive since they're light cavalry. Um, infantry regiments, uh, artillery batteries, uh, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well as fleets, uh, frigates, and ships of the line, and other craft, and so on. So, all and and keep in mind what was most interesting was this was all before computers. So we were all doing this with paper and pencil, and uh, 
adding machines uh, or calculators and giving this all to Dave Arneson, and he would process this as the sort of human version of what would be the computer in today's parlance um, and take all these budgets and uh, create all these regiments. And the whole idea was to create tabletop games that we could play out with miniatures. And it, it worked very, very well. There was a lot of diplomacy and alliances that were formed and uh, joint operations and so on. So after you created your fleets and armies um, in quite, quite a bit of detail, then uh, you would order your fleets and armies to move. And when uh, the uh, armies of opposing teams or opposing nations uh, met in a particular province, then they would take... They, Dave would move it to a uh, topographic map. Let's say it's in northern Italy. And then the uh, commanders on each side would move the armies and fleets, not knowing a lot of what's going on the, uh, with their opponents or where they exactly are through the fog of war. And then when those armies would meet, that would be the occasion for a tabletop battle, which could be played out uh, in miniature on, a, on the tabletop. And that was a very elaborate but tremendously fun and challenging um, sort of uh, situation that, uh, you know, allowed a lot of uh, gaming activity. And each of us had a particular nation. I was the Barbary Pirates on the north coast of Africa, and uh, Dave Arneson christened me Karpasha. <laughs> now, to get back to Gary Gygax's connection, um, since America in 1800, uh, which was the time of the setting, uh, was quite remote from Europe, and yet there were American Navy ships occasionally showing up, and things were going on in the Caribbean and so on. Uh, Dave enlisted Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva, which is 300 miles from the Twin Cities, to uh, represent the United States. And Gary Gygax jumped in that with, into that with both feet, and uh, he was sending orders and uh, to Dave Arneson and doing a lot of stuff with the American Navy and this, that, and the other. And so that was... Uh, his involvement in that. So he was certainly uh, acquainted with what we were doing and so on uh, remotely. And then at some point, Arneson transitions to the Blackmore campaign, right? And so, I mean, I, I think I've heard the story that this, uh, one particular game where he puts down the castle and, and you guys play a fantasy-based game. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, Dave would host games uh, in the basement, uh, of his parents' home you know, in Highland Park in uh, in St. Paul's Highland Park district. And we'd come over on Saturday and play different things. And uh, one particular uh, day we got there and he said, we're going to try something new. We're going to uh, have a, an adventure with uh, kind of a medieval setting. And so he said, Mike, you're going to be a cleric character. Okay. I said, uh, all right, let's give this a try. And he said, um, you get to choose your equipment here. And uh, the several other players uh, were also given characters. And off we went on an adventure that he uh, had created for us. And so that was, that was the birth of Dungeons & Dragons right there. And so I, uh, at the time, it was just another thing that we were trying because as part of this rich milieu in the Twin Cities, we were gaming all sorts of different things, and we had we were creating board games and this and that and trying them out with each other and so on. Um, so at the time, it was fairly unremarkable, but obviously in retrospect, that was the birth of D&D. So I'm tremendously uh, gratified to, to say that I was there at the creation and I was the first cleric character. And... Uh, 
who knew it was going to become such a big deal? Okay, I got lots of questions about this game. All right, so sure. so first, did he have did he have the castle? Right, wasn't there? He had bought, I thought, right, a model castle, which was a Blackmore castle. And does he put it down? Is is that correct? Uh, I believe so, but I I seem to recall that we uh, our adventure was. Um, I don't know if it was a dungeon adventure or outdoor, uh, the overarching memory of that particular game episode was that we ran into a Balrog and that Balrog was uh, pretty formidable. And I didn't know what a Balrog was, uh, but uh, we found out pretty soon that it's a very uh, capable monster and we had to beat a hasty retreat out of there. So that's the one thing that i remember uh, another thing is that uh i had a mace and that was my particular weapon and i had the ability to um cure wounds so obviously we were low level since this was just the very genesis uh of the whole concept and uh so one of my main duties in addition to wielding the mace was to uh potentially heal uh, some of the characters from their uh, from their wounds and that sort of hmm. thing. So, uh, I wish I could give you a lot of more detail about exactly what we did and how we did it. Um, but that's what I remember: the, the relative humidity in the room. Yeah, we, have, we have an hour. The yeah. ambient, August memory. Do you remember the ambient temperature? What was the weather? <laughs> did did Dave Arneson like it cold in the room right. or warm? Or, what, so, yeah, that's. Um... So, right here's the question. So. Is, is he's at Dave Arneson's, the basement of his parents' house. Was what? How old was Arneson at the time? Was he living at home, or did he just use his parents' basement? I'm trying to get a sense of the age differences between you, because you were young. Were you were you still were you in high school yeah. or college at that point? I was born in 1951, and uh, I, as they say, you can look it up. I think Dave was born in 1947. Um, obviously, with uh, Wikipedia, you could find that out in uh, 20 seconds. Uh, I'd say four or five years different. Uh, uh, he and Dave Wesley and Ross Maker and Dan Nicholson, they're all somewhat older than uh, than I was at the time. And is it fair to say you said you didn't know what a Balrog is? Is it possible you were the only one at the table who didn't know what a Balrog was? Because you've, you've mentioned on prior podcasts that you didn't come with a real fantasy background, right? You hadn't done a lot of reading. Like so many of us, that was our background, but that wasn't yours. Correct. Uh, I'm a history guy. I've always loved history since I was a kid. I still love history uh, to this day, and I've never had much interest in fantasy or science fiction, uh, which is a, a little bit uh, maybe unusual for the, the depth that uh, I was into this whole uh, world of fantasy and science fiction and TSR and so So, yeah, it's possible that I was uh, the one who did not know what a Balrog was. Um, although I, now I can say, even to this day, I have a healthy respect. For that's right. You learned pretty quickly. Uh, that's right. So get, get out of get out of it. Run. Flee. I like the first encounter is run away. Th- that's right. Right. Th- that people seems, should learn that. That set the proper tone for D and D. People should run. Right. Some, if you don't know what it is and, and it looks terrifying, run. I, I will say, uh, Dave Arneson. W- always was a first-class game master, whether we were doing Napoleonics or anything else. And so this was very natural uh, for him to uh, take on kind of a whole new dimension uh, with the with the medieval setting and the fantasy and, uh, you know, dungeon adventuring and so on within the Blackmore um, campaign. So I had some further participation in the Blackmore campaign, but not to any uh, great extent. Um, others 
Greg Spenson in particular uh, was uh, very active, and he and uh, Dave Arneson would uh, have uh, individual games where uh, the great Svenny, and that's a takeoff on his name, Greg Swenson, mm -hmm. uh, would go adventuring, and he had his own uh, uh, mini castle or keep uh, or whatever. And uh, so uh, there was a fair amount of this uh, going on, and Dave McGarry was a good friend of Dave Arneson's. Uh, Dave Arneson was in St. Paul, Dave McGarry in Minneapolis. Uh, they were very good friends uh, for for the duration of uh, Dave Arneson's life. And uh, Dave McGarry uh, also got hooked into this, and he uh, created this dungeon board game so that Dave Arneson, who was generally otherwise always game mastering, could uh, do some sort of adventuring himself uh, in a board game format. And that was the genesis of the dungeon uh board oh, games wow. which i'm assuming most uh of your audience is at least somewhat familiar sure. with and uh, they took that game to lake geneva and showed it to gary gygax and uh, this is a pretty well-known story um did uh, kind of a dungeon adventure with him and that's when gary uh right away recognized that this was a pretty cool thing and might have some possibilities. So, um, again, I don't need to go over that story again. It's pretty well known, but uh, that's kind of how things took off. And uh, when Gary Gygax recognized the uh, value or the, the play, play value of uh, the Dungeons & Dragons concept, you know, from that point on, uh, he was uh, a tremendous proponent of it, obviously. And, uh, you know, that's when things started to take off. Since, since you were the first cleric, I would be remiss if I did not take this opportunity to ask you if you could shed any light on the prohibition of clerics using edged weapons. Uh, I, I can provide no rationale for that, except I can tell you that I was told that by Dave Artisan right literally from day one um you know that's why i had a mace instead of a sword and some of the other adventures had swords and uh, edge weapons but i did not so that uh, i i can't give you the reason for the for that prohibition but it was right from the beginning so you didn't complain <laughs> well see and that's the part that's so go ahead mike i'm sorry a mace it's kind of a cool thing, and it's uh, it's not a it's, sword. It's different. You're, you're so. It's just interesting that only a decade later, that if one of my, for instance, if one of my friends said, "Hey, I made this game, and you're going to do this and that," I would have been like, "Who are you? Who are you making a game to do this?" You know, we needed the rules. It was so important that someone named Gary Gygax or Dave Arneson wrote this. Like, you know, and these people you knew was that a. Uh, you know, and you were playing games that you basically kind of made up the rules in a lot of cases. Was that a spirit that you had at that time? And, and because, you know, again, for me, that would be very, it's almost anathema to how we dealt years later, where if it wasn't official TSR, I didn't want, I wasn't interested. There wasn't in even really a rule book. Right. Right. The chain mail was floating right. around, right? Cha the chain mail rules were used, if I recall, loosely, right? Chainmail, of course, is for uh, medieval combat on a small scale, uh, whether it's be individuals and there's a jousting part of that as well. Um, so small scale medieval battles, which are obviously uh, incredibly bloody and uh, a lot of blunt force trauma uh, on the participants, not the players, but uh, their characters and so on. So, yeah, the the uh, the fantasy 
supplement of chainmail is obviously credited for some of the interest in um, what later became uh, the Dungeons and Dragons world, where uh, elves and dwarves uh, and dragons and so on were introduced into that uh, setting. And of course, the purists uh, among medieval historians or enthusiasts of the chainmail game were, uh, you know, taken aback by uh, putting in these fantasy characters. But obviously, as uh, played out, no pun intended, um, that became quite popular, and that was kind of the jumping jumping off point, the springboard, you know, for what became D and D. Yeah, and, and and to James' question, so were you guys okay with? Because I assume Dave Arneson was just making up these rules, like like you had mentioned about Edgeway. You guys were you. It sounds like you guys were okay with that and willing to go with the flow. Yes, absolutely, um, and I think you know you see that. Uh, you've always seen that in the game where the, the, the dungeon master really kind of calls the shots and hopefully there's a good structure and there's armored classes and to hit and initiative and all that sort of thing. But yes, uh, this was being created uh, as, uh, I hesitate to say on the fly, but in essence, that's what it was. Yeah, we and we were very uh, uh, acquainted with that sort of thing. And as I said, Dave was a tremendous uh, game master. So as players, we were very content to go with the flow. Now, I should also mention at this time uh, in the background was the International Federation of Wargaming, IFW. And IFW turned out to be quite pivotal in a number of uh, respects. Uh, IFW was a national club uh, of gaming enthusiasts, primarily military gaming and Avalon Hill enthusiasts, but also uh, as a got off the ground incorporating miniatures enthusiasts and so on. And I think at its heyday had between 300 to 500 members nationwide. And there was a magazine that would come out uh, every other month or quarterly. Uh, And of course it was all done by volunteers. So that was irregular in terms of publication and so on. And within the IFW, um, the purpose of which was to um, unify the contacts of gamers, you know, from coast to coast and get them in touch with each other because this hobby was on the rise, so to speak. And how do you find other people to play these somewhat unusual games that are you know, not published by Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley? So within the IFW, uh, International Federation of War Game, there were a number of societies created. Um, the Probably the most famous of which was the Castle and Crusade Society, which were medieval enthusiasts. And uh, those are the people that um, really got some of the first exposure to uh, the D&D concept as that came together. But um, also within that was the, uh, and this was Gary Gygax's concept, and he made it happen, the WGIG, which was the War Game Inventors Guild. And as I mentioned, there was one game a year coming out in the spring, usually in the month of May, from Avalon Hill. And if you didn't like that, you had to wait another year. Well, Gygax said, there's enough of us who love history and know history and and gaming that uh, we should be uh, creating some of these games ourselves and could be promising. And then we're not at the mercy of Avalon Hill's one title per year. So the Wargame Inventors Guild, uh, under his tutelage, uh, was created so that uh, gaming enthusiasts within the IFW could create and present their game ideas to other members of the Wargame Inventors Guild or the larger membership and uh, get some exposure for that and see if some of these other game ideas from other individuals would gain some traction and popularity. And at that time, I had 
created after the 1966 movie The Blue Max came out. I created uh, the Fight in the Skies game, which again was uh, created uh, based upon my inspiration of seeing the aerial action in that particular movie, which is very inspiring. Uh, that movie literally inspired me to create this game. And so we were creating rules uh, in St. Paul, uh, played in, in my parents' basement. We had a square tile floor. We got 172nd scale models from Ravel, and we were uh, staging World War I dogfights, and I was formulating the rules and so on. And when Gary heard about that, he said, well, you should self-publish this. Um, through the Wargame Inventors Guild. So the, I self-published the first edition was 25 copies, the second edition 50, the third edition 100 copies, and this was all uh, mimeographed. Or Actually, my father worked at the 3M company, and they had okay. Thermofact their version, and so we ran it out. So I had connection with uh, Gary on that, and, of course, Dave Arneson and other people were playing the Fight in the Skies game. And so it was just a just a tremendously fun and uh, very vibrant dynamic uh, sort of times for gamers. So we were having a blast and we were creating these things uh, as we, as inspiration hit us. And how old were you when you wrote young. Fight in the Skies? Yeah. Cause you were quite young. Yes, I was in high school. Um, the movie came out in 1966 and uh, I was immediately struck by the aerial scenes. Of course, this is a, um, all before computer graphics, and so they created real aircraft and uh, staged real dogfights with a camera plane, and uh, those were very stirring. And I thought, um, being inspired by that, I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could uh, play a, a game, a board game that could kind of give you the feel of that combat with the, you know, the airplanes mm -hmm. going this that way, this way and the other, and uh, aerial maneuvers and and so on. And so that was really the inspiration for it, and that's how it started. So. Um, you know, credit to Gary for uh, uh, promoting that idea and uh, Fight in the Skies game um, after the self-publishing uh, version. Uh, the first three editions that I did in 25, 50, and 100 copies, he uh, persuaded Don Lowry of Lowry Enterprises, who, were, who was publishing uh, his line of games called Guidon Games, at the time, he uh, persuaded him to look at my game, and they published it. That was the fourth edition. And then after that ran its course, when TSR was starting um, in 1975, uh, the Fight in the Skies became one of the first uh, TSR box games um, and was released in early 1976, was just prior to my joining the company. And, that, and became known as Dawn Patrol. Yeah, uh, the the seventh edition, uh, TSR did the fourth, uh, excuse me, TSR did the fifth edition, which we call the blue box, and uh, because it has a blue box uh, horizontal orientation to the box, then the uh, sixth edition was a vertical, vertical box with a red border, uh, and that change was made because a lot of hobby shops were had racks and they were displaying the game, so he wanted to put the title up at top. So that uh, box got tipped from horizontal to vertical, and the Fighting Skies name uh, is up on the top of the uh, of the front of the box, so that it's more visible. And the Dawn Patrol game, then the decision was made to uh, emphasize the role playing more. The role playing had always been a part of that, the creation of characters, and I'll be happy to touch on that in a minute if you like. Um, uh, it was deemed 
uh, and rightly so, Dawn Patrol would be a better name for the game, uh, uh, more saleable, more recognizable. Of course, there was a movie from the 1930s called Dawn Patrol and so on. Uh, so that's what prompted the name of the uh, game to change from Fight in the Skies to Dawn Patrol. So um, going back to uh, to the touchstone of the IFW, one of the societies, in addition to the Castle Crusade Society, and there was a Stalingrad Society, uh, we created the Fight in the Skies Society, which, believe it or not, still exists. Uh, 50 plus years later and published our own newsletter and to this day the fighting sky society probably has 75 or 85 uh, members diehard players of the game which is even more remarkable since the game has not been uh, published since 1982 so what we're at what we're at work on now is an eighth edition Um, there's been a lot more research and a lot more data and stuff that we can um uh, build into the eighth edition and we've got more critical hits and all sorts of different details adding to the game. Incidentally, this afternoon, I'm going down to the dungeon hobby shop museum in Lake Geneva and we're putting on some demos, uh, two different demo sessions for new players there. So, uh, we're still, uh, still playing the game, still promoting the game. And, uh, one of the diehard players from the 1980s in Whitewater, Wisconsin, which is about 30 miles from Lake Geneva, a gentleman named Rick Johnson, very avid player of, of Dawn Patrol. He uh, subsequently went on to a career in video game design and uh, that sort of thing. And so he uh, took it on himself to create an online version of it, which is uh, probably if we'd had a, a programmer do it for us, probably would have cost $100,000 to do But He... Uh, had the expertise and the uh, devotion to the game, created a really tremendous online version that we play uh, every Sunday night and every Monday night. Uh, there's sessions and we play other games as well. Have uh, oh, wow. mini campaigns, sort of thing. So it's just quite astounding. So this game really, uh, even though it was never a tremendously big seller, about 50,000 copies total, uh, really has legs. And uh, so with 8th edition, I'll be able to play a half-orc um, German <laughs> bombardier uh <laughs> Uh, is that something that's going to be a possible? I'm not going to go in that direction. Oh. But, uh, uh, but Dave Arneson, he, uh, oh, wow. D&D, he wanted to have aerial uh, encounters with, uh, you know, uh, griffins and uh, gargoyles and dragons and so on. So he uh, he kind of riffed off of the Fight in the Skies game for some of the action, which I think he called BITS, B-I-T-S, Battle in the Skies. Um, and so... Uh, you know, I can't speak uh, much about that, but he was certainly um, inspired to play off of uh, what I had created with Fight in the Skies for some of the aerial encounters that were in the early early versions of D and D. Now, now, Mike. So we have a segment on our show, right, called Sage Advice, where we ask questions of each other, right, not our guests usually or ever. Okay. About AD&D from Dragon Magazine. Well, you, of course, remember Sage Advice from Dragon Magazine. And there was Dispel Confusion, which was from Polyhedron. And people would send in questions. And I noticed, because I did these questions last week, mm-hmm. I noticed that the, is he here? I noticed yeah. that there's a little section for Dawn Patrol. And, and, uh-huh. and only with your approval, I would like to, if you're okay with it, ask you these questions to see... To test your knowledge of the Dawn Patrol rules. <laughs> well, yeah, don't put me on the spot. Or no, anything. that's what we do here. That's exactly what Dan does. Right. So go ahead. Okay. This will be fun. I mean, you wrote the game. I mean, you know, it's... It... And more importantly, what he also... Uh... Were, you, were you to have answered these? So did you ever answer Dawn Patrol questions for Polyhedron Magazine? Um, most likely, yes. Okay. 
Can a pilot or observer fire a long burst if there are less than four ammo points left in the gun? Yeah, long burst is four ammo points. Um, so can I fire a long burst if there are less than four ammo points in my gun? The answer would be uh, yes, but the effectiveness would not be of a long burst because you don't have as many bullets uh, as would be expended in a long burst. Um, without getting too esoteric about it, there's different chances of, of gun jams depending on the type of burst you shoot and uh, the number of bullets expended and so on. So. Well, uh, Let's see if you're right. The answer is yes. This is often done to prevent a jam from reducing the effect of firing the last few bullets from a gun. It should be noted that the hits scored are still determined normally on the proper table for either an interrupted or short burst. And there's more. So, yes, yeah, so you are, you are correct. Give them a ding ding. There yes. you go. There's one more, and then we'll let you off the hook. The rules state that only three out of four of the normal hits are scored. When one of two gun jams on an on, when one of two guns jams on an interrupted burst, how do you round off fractions? So the rules state that only three quarters of the normal hits are scored when one of two guns jam on an interrupted burst. How do you round off fractions? Uh, well, the simple ones: if you scored uh, four hits, it's three instead of four, and if it's you scored eight hits, it's six instead of eight. Um, you simply round. Um, I believe you, you, you just round it off and uh, you can round it in your favor. The answer is round off in favor of the attacker. Oh, wonderful. It's Congrats. like he wrote the game. It's like he wrote the game. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. yeah. Now, okay. he, we, he didn't warn him about that. I just saw this sitting here. Sorry. All right. We'll get back to questions that you were more prepared for probably. That we slightly gave him some notice on. That's true. You know, nothing says our show like bringing people on who have better things to do and peppering them with questions from 40 years ago. That's, that's what we do here. It's, that's it. Thank you, sir. Really Speaking of 40 that. years ago, so when did you first meet Gary face-to-face? -face? I don't mean necessarily what year, but in what context? I corresponded with him through the IFW. He was one of the principals, and, he, and by that I mean one of the five or six people who were active and making things happen organizationally with the International Federation of Wargaming. So I uh, uh, met him through the mail, so to speak, and through the, through the IFW corresponded with him. Um, and then, interestingly, uh, in 1968, so I was 16, just short of my 17th birthday, um, Gary decided to host a one-day game convention or game gathering in Lake Geneva at the Horticultural Hall, which was a block from his house in Lake Geneva. And so um, that was scheduled for Saturday, August 24th, 1968. And hearing about that through the IFW newsletter, I asked my parents, could we possibly go to Lake Geneva? It's a tourist town. Uh, my sister's two years younger than I am, so she would have been 14. And could we could we maybe make the trip? Now, this is 300 miles, keep in mind. Could we maybe make the trip to Lake Geneva? Because I'd love to attend this uh, one-day gaming get-together that uh, my acquaintance through the mail, Gary Gygax, is putting on. And bless their hearts, they said yes. And so uh, we loaded up the car, St. Paul, my sister and I, on board. And they went to Lake Geneva. We went to Lake Geneva, uh, stayed overnight motel, and 
fortunately, Lake Geneva is a tourist town, a lot of stuff going on. They take a boat ride on the lake and so on. Well, I went to Hort Hall and gamed my heart out. So that was the very first Gen Con, and that's when I met uh, Gary personally for the first time. So if you want to come game in a tourist town where other your friends and family can do other things while you go game, what, you, what could you do, Dan? You could come to GrogCon. You can come to GrogCon September 30th or October 2nd here in Orlando. Here, right, and, and your friends can go to Disney World and other things, and you can come game with us, old school gaming. So That's terrible. We have a guest on your plug in our convention. Our, Absolutely, I'm plugging. Cool. And, of course, Mike, you have an open invitation. Just talk to us later if you'd like to come down. We'd love to have you here. So Yes. Uh, who, knows where, who knows where I might show That'd be great. That's true. I heard there's a rumor that you, you wandered into uh, DaveCon. That's basically Is that true. Right. Yeah, that's true. What? Uh, so what happened? Were you like driving by and you saw the marquee Dave Con? <laughs> Puppet <laughs> show then Dave uh, Con. Puppet show and Dave Con. Uh, well, I've been a regular I've been a regular attendee at Gary Con. I where I live currently is less than an hour from Lake Geneva. So and for instance, I'm going there this afternoon to for gaming happily. Um and I grew up in St. Paul, and one of my high school buddies from St. Paul lived out in Seattle. Was going to be back in the Twin Cities uh, on that particular weekend. So uh, I knew that Dave Con was going on, and I knew that my uh, high school buddy was going to be in town with some of my other friends from high school. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go up. Uh, you know, I'm going to go up and uh, meet my friend, who I don't get to see very often, and. Then I wandered over to uh, Dave Con. I had to find the hotel that it was at in Roseville, uh, but I did. And when I strolled in there, no one was expecting me. Tim Cask was chatting with uh, somebody else. I don't recall who it was. And uh, anyway, they were they were just flabbergasted to see me because there was no advance notice that I was even going to be there. And then, of course, the people behind Dave Con were delighted when they heard I was there. And I said, well, I'm just here for an hour, hour and a half. That's all I have the time for. But... So they were just uh, delighted. But one of the interesting uh, encounters there, uh, speaking of random encounters, at DaveCon, uh, I mentioned to, uh, is it Vic? Who's oh, yeah, Vic. The, the mastermind. Yeah, uh, the that, mastermind, our dear friend. Yeah. The guy behind, and he was just tickled that I was there. Oh, we, we got to have, we got to invite you. He was apologetic. Well, sorry, we didn't invite you to come. I said, well, no, that's all right. Don't worry. Um, he said, well, I'd love to have you come next year. So I think I will, um, as, you know, as a guest. But um, I, I happen to mention that I have a children's book project in the works. And I was thinking of a, doing a Kickstarter in the future. And right away, he said, oh, you got to meet this, this guy, Cully. He's right here. He's running a Kickstarter right now. And so what he was doing, and he showed me uh, on his uh, smartphone all the stuff that Kickstarter does and all oh, the metric stuff that they provide and so on. So that was that was our, uh, one of several side benefits. Plus, I don't to see Tim Cast that often. And, oh, and Dave Wesley was who was, he was chatting with. Um, you know, we just had a, a great old time uh, meeting of the minds, all the uh, grognards, uh, old timers. Uh, chewing the fat and that sort of thing. So I I did happen to uh, make it to Dave Con uh, unwittingly, uh, unplanned, uh, sort of spontaneous. So you know, random, random character appearance. I guess they, we could call it yeah. in the game. <laughs> they rolled the Mike Car. They rolled the Mike Car. The random some, table. There's a Mike Car. Mike Car. Character suitable. Right. Well, we should uninvite him. So maybe he'll wander in. That's uh, right. Car. Yeah, you, you don't come, so you can just you're show up. You're uninvited. <laughs> 
Do not. Okay. Whatever you do, don't, don't come, come to Garcon. No, please don't. Don't show up in Orlando. I, I remember hearing you say somewhere, I think, that you wrote, we love stuff like this. You're going to be like, this is a boring question, but we love stuff like this. Did, did you ride from Chicago? Did you ride with Gary to Gen Con at some point? I, uh, yes. Um, well, at the at the first Gen Con, uh, 1968, that was August 24th, 1968, uh, the very first Gen Con. Um, after his opening remarks, um, I ran the first, I ran the very first game at the very first Gen Con, which was a fight in the skies game. We had plastic models who played on the floor. Did you hear that? The first game ever. First game. First Gen Con game, game ever. ever. Yeah, and I'm also the only person who's been to every Gen Con since then, and uh, I've already. That's right. Been out on the calendar uh so anyway uh for that was gen con number what became number one of course it wasn't called gen con right out right away uh it was uh under the auspices of the ifw but anyway uh on year two which was 1969 uh i rode down on the train from uh from st paul the Milwaukee Road, Hiawatha, to Chicago. Um, and in those days, there were numerous trains every day uh, between the Twin Cities and Chicago. Uh, I think eight, eight or ten t- trains a day, passenger trains, uh, making that 400-mile trip. So uh, several of us, it was uh, my friend Jim Siegfried Nelson. He came up from Iowa to St. Paul, and we got on the train. His father worked for the Milwaukee Road, so he had a, he had a family pass. And then another gentleman, Jim Abler, from Anoka, Minnesota, the three of us uh, got on the Hiawatha, and the morning Hiawatha took it to Chicago. Uh, got there in the afternoon, and Gary Gagax was off work from Fireman's Fund Insurance, and we met him and rode the uh, Chicago Northwestern commuter train from uh, Chicago up to Lake Geneva. So yes, that was Gen Con two in 1969. So what did you talk about? What is it like okay. riding with Gary? <laughs> gaming gaming so uh yeah that's that's what he was he he loved gaming i mean i know that's obvious right but he was just a true gamer he was he was he was a gamer through and through and and that was also the same uh with dave arneson and uh dave wesley i mean some of these uh people who um really devoted a lot of their time and effort to uh to not just play games but to create games were diehard uh, gamers through and through and and gygax and arneson both of them uh were that way in spades they were just uh deep into it and i i think i'm i'm in that category maybe to a little lesser degree but um yeah we love gaming I, i've loved gaming since i was a since i was a kid and played uh, parker brothers and milton bradley games and i still play i'm you know i'm gonna play this afternoon so it's just a tremendous hobby um and uh, you can tell pretty pretty soon uh, when you meet some gamers that uh, ooh, these guys are they're deeper into it than the rest of us. So, you know, hats off to them. And then you graduate. You said you were a history major in college, yep. and yep. and you graduated, and the job prospects weren't great. <laughs> they were not existent. I was <laughs> going to be a teacher. Um, I I you know, at that age, you think, well, what do you, what do I want to do when I grow up or what do I want to study in college and what career? So I thought I, I wanted to be a teacher and I would have been a teacher, social studies teacher. Uh, so I got a degree in history and did student teaching, uh, which was interesting and graduated in 1973. Uh, but there were really no, really no uh, teaching jobs at that time. Uh, it was, I believe during the Nixon administration and, um, there was a recession going on and, you know, there was not a lot of, lot of teaching prospects, um, at that time. So 
uh, I had worked uh, at the Ground Round restaurant uh, uh, in Roseville, Minnesota, uh, as a cook, and done that for two years. That was my college job to help pay part of tuition, and was doing a lot of gaming. Uh, and this was all part of the uh, very vibrant Twin Cities gaming scene. I, I specifically decided I wanted to go to college in the Twin Cities. I didn't want to go away to away to college or university because the gaming scene was so much fun and so vibrant at that time in the Twin Cities that um, I certainly didn't want to spend four years elsewhere. Uh, so I was able to, you know, during my time studying at McAllister College, uh, able to continue doing a lot of gaming and uh, the Napoleonic campaign and uh, don't give up the ship battles that we were having related to that campaign and uh, fight the skies games, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I graduated, I had a degree in history, uh, got a teaching certificate certified in Minnesota, but there were no jobs. So then what was I going to do? And after a while, my father said, well, we didn't send you to college to, you know, be a cook, um, you know, what are you going to do? So at that point, I, with really very few or no prospects, I asked at the ground round, uh, our location in Roseville was the number two ground round in the chain. And at that time, there was probably 70 or 75 ground rounds around the United States. Uh, they were the number two location and they were bringing in uh, trainees, guys in their 20s uh, to be manager trainees to go learn the ropes and then go out and um, be managers for this expanding chain. So I asked, could I go into the management training program? And they said, yes, if you're willing to go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, yes. And I, I think surmised later that maybe nobody else would go to Cedar Rapids, <laughs> Iowa. So it, it, it was a take it or leave it. And I didn't really want to go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, but I did for two years and got some management experience uh, as a manager trainee and assistant manager. And that was right when TSR was starting, uh, 1974-75. And Gary, uh, who I was better acquainted with by that time, uh, and he'd known about the game that I created. And, and in fact, he was a proponent of it. Um, you know, he said, would you like to come to Lake Geneva and work with us? Uh, we can't offer much salary, but uh, if you do come with us, we'll uh, we'll offer some stock in the company. And if this enterprise takes off as it did, um, that stock will be worth uh, worth something in the long run. And so, at uh, the ground round, I had worked up from assistant manager one hundred fifty dollars a week to start. This is one hundred fifty dollars a week uh, to start as a trainee. I'd worked up to two hundred five a week, and Gary offered me one hundred and ten dollars a week to come to Lake Geneva. Uh, so it was 40% pay cut, but I was not married and I didn't have a family and it was an easy decision. And, uh, uh, instead of working six days a week in the restaurant business, I'd be happy to work six or seven doing fun games, game related, uh, work. So I jumped at the chance and in March of 1976, I made the trip to Lake Geneva and moved there. I was, I think the seventh employee, um, and took on uh, a role as, uh, general manager at least uh, that was initial uh initial position and, so, and who were the other employees at the time and and what building was that which which tsr building tsr uh, or more accurately the partnership of gary gygax and brian bloom had purchased the residence at 723 william street uh which is now the Dungeon Hobby Shop Museum, I'm happy to say. That's a whole separate story. Um, so that's where I reported for work. Uh, it's a uh, fairly modest, mid-sized residence with a front porch, two two stories, um, 
and the living room became later the dungeon hobby shop. The kitchen became the shipping room. The basement was uh, storage for game inventory and so on. And the offices were upstairs. Tim Cask had a uh, the periodicals office, and that was right when Strategic uh, Review was about to become the Dragon later um, in that summer, I believe, 76. And uh, Gary Gygax had an office. Brian Bloom had an office. Dave Sutherland, uh, who... I think started at TSR maybe two weeks before me. Um, they suggested uh, Dave Arneson, or excuse me, Dave Sutherland might uh, need a roommate. So he, he became my first of numerous roommates in Lake Geneva. So uh, Brian Bloom, Gary Gygax, Tim Cask, myself, Dave Sutherland were some of the initial employees. And uh, maybe Rob Kuntz was, was uh, also uh, involved at that point. And uh, shortly after, uh, you know, the staff continued to uh, expand. What was a young Tim Cask like? Because now he's a curmudgeon. Right. <laughs> he was, uh, I'll say uh, young Tim Cask was uh, colorful and opinionated and uh, always, always fun to talk to because uh, it just his, his nature and his character are uh, uh, a little different from the rest of us. And that, you know, gives him his, uh, uh, his personality is just uh, appealing and kind of fun. So he's he's never shy about uh, expressing his opinion. But I think that's part of what makes him uh, such a uh, interesting guy. And uh, I'm you know happy to say we've been acquaintances for all these years. And uh, he always greets me warmly when I happen to see him at Gary Khan or Jen Khan or anywhere indeed, else. Indeed, indeed. And now you, of course. So where we know your name, as I mentioned at the outset, is we love, of course, the Holy Trinity, the big. Three, the Monster Manual, the Player's Handbook, and the DMG. And if you start reading a book properly, you start right at the beginning at the foreword, and you end up writing the foreword for each of the three books, which is interesting because you're not you're not really a big D and D player at the time. Is that is that fair to say? That's true. Um, it is kind of. Uh fascinating that i got so deep into uh dnd and adnd uh on the publication side and uh you know being the games and rules editor and having the honor and it really was a tremendous honor to be the editor uh, of gary's works there and it was a quite a massive task um so the i i always tell people the fact that i was not deep into D&D and didn't play it a lot and to this day don't play it a lot um, gave me the opportunity to kind of look at the rules and what was presented and explanations uh, kind of look at at it in a fresh and different way as somebody that uh, could assess the explanations and the procedures and the processes of the game to see did it flow well and was it well explained so that if you came into this cold as so many buyers would be uh was it understandable so i think i that's that lack of very close familiarity uh, allowed me to uh do a better job of editing and kind of uh, assess the viability of what was presented and was it complete enough or were there gaps that needed uh filling out and that sort of thing so help me be a better editor because uh editor really can add a lot of value to what the creator or the author of the game um, uh, 
gives you to start with. And uh, so I was able to, I think, add some value to that. Those four words um, I knew would be read by a tremendous number of people, uh, gaming enthusiasts and D&D people. So all three of those four words, I put a lot of time and effort into, you know, thinking about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. So I think if you even read them today, all these many years later, I think, you know, they still stand up pretty well um, uh, because of that care and attention that I gave to that. So uh, being, being, being chosen to be the editor for that was, was quite an honor. And uh, Tim Cast told me years later, he said, uh, Gary wasn't sure if, if you know we should entrust you with uh you know editing being the main editor on those books um but he said i know gary was very pleased and he told me that once or twice as well gary was very pleased with the editing job that i did um and gary gets a lot of credit for because he um he was a very gifted and skilled and articulate writer and so he gave me um as the editor pretty clean copy uh, compared to some other stuff that I saw from other uh, other TSR projects that we got from outside people, um, and it was it was not only a joy but a pleasure, and uh, uh, certainly a little easier task because it was uh, a good manuscript in all three cases. And um, whenever I had a question, I could go to him and ask. So it was pretty cool to be, you know, integral an integral part of of that process. How did how was the decision made? If you know, because your title at that point, you you started as you said general manager, but you become you're the TSR Games and Rules editor. Were you the were you the only editor, and that's why it fell to you? Um, no, not too long after I came as general manager, um, Kevin Bloom, Brian's brother, came on, and and he had an accounting background, and and uh, so on. So he took over the general manager position and later became one of the uh, uh, directors along with Gary and Brian of the company. And at that point, um, I was doing, well, in the early days, doing all sorts of different things. We were all wearing uh, numerous hats and uh, doing whatever needed to be doing, including once in a while pitching in in the shipping department because something, some new product had just come in and we needed to get it out to the hobby shops or to the distributors or whatever. Um, so I was doing a lot of creative stuff and uh, the magnitude of some of these project, projects and the number of them, you know, cried out for somebody to do that full time. So I became the head of the what we call the production department at that point, and later was vice president of production. And um, but I was no, I was not the only editor. I had uh, a couple other people helping. Uh, Tim Jones was uh, a young man who was a D and D aficionado. He was from Georgia. He came up and uh, got on the payroll. In fact, he was another of my roommates for <laughs> for a short period of time. I had like seven roommates in the seven years that I lived in Lake Geneva. That's a story in itself. Uh, but I did have some other people assisting, and uh, you know, uh, numerous people were looking at the different things. But we were we had we're up to our armpits in different projects. Um, you know, with the, uh, there were uh, fledgling modules, uh, dungeon modules. We were doing um, dungeon geomorphs and all sorts of uh, ancillary. Uh, accessories and products and so there was no lack of of activity things going on and then the magazines uh you know uh, the dragon magazine got off the ground and there was little wars and so it was just a very uh, dynamic time with a lot going on well, he, he mentioned he mentioned modules and we have some questions from our 
Sure. Folks, uh, so the Admiral, you know, you mentioned B1, you know, obviously into the unknown. Was that always a tr- learning module or did it have an earlier history? No, it was created as a learning module. Uh, after the basic set came out um, and was relatively successful, quite successful, you know, that was the whole idea. Let's do a basic version of Dungeons and Dragons that can be sold uh, in uh, retail, retail retail stores, you know, not just hobby shops, but retail stores and bookstores. B. Dalton was one of the chains at the time, Crocs and Brentano's in Chicago. Um, let's do a basic Dungeons and Dragons that uh, would be a little simpler and uh, more understandable, uh, you know, to people who were not acquainted with the whole concept of role playing and so on. Um, we're coming into it you know, from their background, maybe in family games or something like that. So uh, Eric Holmes had volunteered to do uh, uh, a new, lesser, uh, complex version, and that became basic D&D. And after that was out shortly, it was still, uh, it was obvious right away that that was not enough um, to help people uh, better understand the concept of creating dungeons and uh, adventuring settings. Uh, we needed something else. So at that point, I raised my hand and, and said, I'd like to I'd like to take a shot at this. I'd like to create this beginner module, um, which became B1. And fortunately, again, uh, fortunately, Gary Gygax and Brian Bloom were the prime decision makers. And they said, all right, uh, do you think you can do this? I said, yeah, I'm going to do it in the evenings. I'm doing it on my own time um, outside of, you know, working all day long on on all the numerous projects going on. So over a relatively short period of a couple of months, I, you know, working at night uh, in my apartment, put that, you know, did a lot of brainstorming and put that thing together pretty much, pretty much single-handed. But right to answer your question, right from the beginning, it was designed to be a explanatory um, beginner's module for dungeon masters so they could see this is how you created a a backstory. This is how you create a setting. This is what a physical dungeon might look like. Um, though there's two levels there, and they fit nicely on top of each other. Um, and uh, you know, you have to consider some of the other questions of you know, where's where do you get in? Where do you get out? Is there any secret entrances or secret exits, and so on? Um, where does the water drain, and all sort of the, that sort of thing, architecturally, um, and then create a plausible backstory. Um, so. You know, it's a living quarters, but it's also, uh, you know, meant to be kind of a fortified position and that sort of thing. So kind of created the whole uh, the whole idea and uh, non-player characters that could be put in there. Um, one of the things that I uh, put in there is um, the, the lore or legends that the individual characters have heard about this place, uh, which was... I. I been getting i still get compliments on that um the dungeon master calls each player in individually before the adventure and says roll a die 20 sided bingo you get a number okay this is what you've heard about this place well um maybe half half or more are accurate uh several are not relevant and uh, a couple are just plain plain wrong so when the players go back after getting this random assortment of uh background uh knowledge or uh, legends about the the setting that they're about to explore um you know that makes for kind of an interesting thing so uh explaining these concepts to the dungeon master and how you 
uh, have to provide uh, useful information, but occasionally you can, you know, puzzle the players or give them something that might not make sense or that they've got to figure out uh, or might be wrong. You know, that's all within the realm of, of what you can do in, in setting the stage. Yeah. So is, that, is it your understanding, was that the first use of, because now that's very common, the, the rumor table and to have false rumors, is it, was it your understanding that was the first use of it? I believe it was, yes. Okay, very interesting. And, and why, was it the first adventure you'd ever written? Yes, and uh, it's the only D&D adventure I ever wrote. Um, I did do some top-secret modules with Corey Kobernick uh, when the top-secret role-playing, espionage role-playing game came out by Merle Rasmussen, uh, a pretty cool game in itself. Uh, we ran, we created some uh, modules which were top-secret adventures or missions um, for Gen Con and then published them, you know, subsequently. We created them for the uh, convention setting for numerous players. Um, and with the idea that they would eventually be published. So there's uh, two, maybe three of those as well. But yeah, it was the only D&D adventure I ever created. I put a lot of work into it. I gave a lot of thought to it. Um, and it's even, I say, especially challenging because it's all for low level. So your tricks and traps can't be too sophisticated or too deadly or too complex. Um, the monsters, uh, the array of monsters and so on has to be suitable to low-level characters and so you know there's a certain amount of care in that uh, that you have to take uh to so that doesn't overwhelm the players you know you want it to be neither too simple nor too complex and and then what are you going to have in there so that's why um when you get to the lower level there's uh the uh, fungus garden uh, a, a big room full of giant mushrooms and so on and so that's kind of a mysterious um setting as well for exploration and hopefully that'll wow the players then also there's the room of pools where there's numerous pools uh with different liquids uh some magical some not and so these are all things for the players to puzzle over but the whole idea was to show the dungeon master that the more interesting and uh um occasionally different sorts of features that you have for the players to encounter that's going to make it uh, challenging for them but also interesting and kind of fun can be entertaining for the dungeon master as well yeah and that's what the folks people have commented they love the room of pools and the mushrooms and uh the npcs that you put in there so uh you know it's it's like b2 they're legendary adventures that you know it's a common experience that people have had they've all played that they know oh you say the room of pools everyone knows what that's about because they're pretty much it, uh, it B two is a little more Samas because it came out of the Moldvay, and a lot of people started in the early eighties. But B one and B two, those are the classic adventures that I don't. I'm pretty much everyone has gone through. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's tremendously gratifying to me. I I, I mean, this was 1979 yeah. uh, when I did that. Uh, I think that's when it was published, um, and I still today. In, you know, in the 21st century, still at some of these game conventions, people come up to me and they compliment me on B1 and what a great time they had. And I was at GaryCon some years ago, and these two guys came up, and one guy says, oh, I, I loved your, your B1 module. I probably run it 100 times. And I looked at him, I said, 100 times? And the guy next to him said, oh, I'm sure he's run it 100 times. He said, that guy, the second guy says, oh, I've probably run it 30 times. So that tells me that uh, it has really stood the test of time, and it has led. Uh, the fact that Goodman Games, you know, 
wanted to and did republish it, the B1 and B2 several years ago, um, you know, it has, has brought it to a whole new audience. So, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm very, very proud of that as part of this whole Dungeons and Dragons story. I, I tell people I had a ringside seat for the whole D&D phenomenon, which was true. Um, and if, if that's one of my several legacies, you know, I'm very happy with that. I, the fact that people still care about it, you know, 40, 50 years later, I mean, that's, that's pretty astounding. Yeah, and he, he barely played D&D, or didn't, and he did a, a legendary, what's our excuse? Right. We've played for 30-something <laughs> yeah. years, and we can't We play. shouldn't play. Right, we should Stop play. playing. Stop You'll write better play. adventures. Right, stop did you, playing. Did, so it was, it was a great honor to, to be chosen. You know, I volunteered for, I'd like to do this, um, and they agreed. And uh, so it was an honor to do it, and again, I knew that, so 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 many players would would go through this so i really put a lot of care and thought into it and and you know having played in dave arneson's campaign uh peripherally um you know gave me i i knew what i needed to do and what i wanted to do and uh, again made a lot of notes but it was really pretty much my entire creation and it was only needed light editing you know other people and gary and others looked at it and tim cask and so on um but it didn't need a lot of work, and uh, as you can see in the B one, it's all kind of crammed in there. I think it's twenty four pages, and we, you know, we just squeezed it all in there and added some illustrations. Uh, so it's pretty meaty, I think. And uh, some of those concepts, uh, you know, the extra player characters and the the rumors and legends table and that sort of thing. That's you know pretty cool. Did you play cast it? I don't believe we did. I think. Um, well, I can't say. It. In fact, there might be playtesting credits in there, so I, I, I can't say it wasn't playtested, but not extensively like some some things would be. Um, I just think... Oh, and I also remember that module is designed where the rooms are empty, there's no mm. monsters and there's no treasures. You have to, as the dungeon master, this is part of your learning experience, you have to populate that dungeon. Uh, some of the rooms, and of course I emphasize, don't put something in every room. Um, some, th some rooms should be empty. So uh, keep in mind that every time that 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 module is played, it's different because there's different monsters and different treasures in different rooms and stuff. So playtesting it would be uh, a little less straightforward, you know, because of that variability. Do you ever run it? No, I've never run. You've it. never. Um, well, some my friend uh, Jeff Doc Mangeras, who lives in Northwest Indiana, he said, "Oh, Mike, you should run the D one module, the B one module someday. Yeah, that would that would just attract a crowd." And I said, "Well, yeah, but everybody's played it. So how are you? You know, how are we going to make it? In, you know, a lot of people know that. You know, setting backwards, forwards, and sideways. Well, you could maybe change up some things." And I said, "Well, I'm not a dungeon master. You know, I need I need I need a dungeon master alongside me to do handle all the combat and that sort of thing. Uh, you know." Uh, that sort of thing, but I could certainly spin That's a tail right. and tell we could story. do that. He'll do it. James, so, is your, you're volunteering. I'd volunteer for that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, you know, and I said, you know, we could maybe do that as a special event, maybe at Gary Con sometime. Uh. Or, you know, something. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe do it for <laughs> Boo. Maybe. Broadcon. <laughs> I mean, I know people have paid $100 to get a seat to play a Paul Stormberg game in the Gygax house on Center Street. And they were happy to do it. So, and and some of that money went to charity in a couple of cases and stuff. So, you know, that would be kind oh, of oh, it's fun a lot of fun. Do. Yeah, I went to Al Hammock's Ghost Tower. It's yeah. a lot of fun, even yeah. if you've been through it. It's just, it's a thrill. And so, yeah, I think your friend is right, and I think I think he's right. You should do. Yeah. Okay. Well, 
ruling it out. But and it was not a, was there a sequel to it ever that you considered uh, making for it? Uh, Paul, well, Paul Sternberg um, proposed the sequel, and then we did. It was I think it was uh, for one of the cons. He came up with a sequel to it, so he'd be the guy to ask about okay. that. And so I had a little bit of input, and it was you know he did ninety five percent of the of the work, which was good. Um, but he took the kind of the follow up of what happened to these characters. Why you know they left Quasquitan, which is the the name of of that keep or or that stronghold where they had lived and is being explored in B1. You know, where did they go and uh, et cetera. So yeah, Paul Storm would be the guy to ask, ask about that. So with my blessing, he created a, a follow-up right, very good. module. Very good. Do we have, uh, I don't want to dominate. Do we have guest questions? Yeah, we, we have, have a couple more. So um, All right. the uh, Carlos from our friend from Mexico asked, did you get, you know, obviously without the internet, where did you go as a source of information for all your historical? Was it the library? Was it books that you purchased? You know, back then, how did you become so versed in history? You know, obviously before going to school for it, what was your common repository of knowledge that you all used? And Carlos is a professor. We should point out. Oh, he is. Oh, yes. Oh. Uh, well, as a sixteen-year-old, I was. Uh, really um, swept off my feet by the movie, The Blue Max. And so I wanted to design a game on World War One aviation and, you know, recreate the thrill, hopefully in a board game setting and the fun and the challenge of uh, aerial dogfighting. So uh, you've got a lot of different airplanes from different uh, nations and so on. So yes, I had to go to the library and, uh, you know, rely on a, a, as many sources of books um, on aircraft performance and reading the uh, memoirs of uh, pilots and aces from World War One, and you know, getting hard data was uh, was a challenge. Um, but there was a series of books published in English England by the Harley under the Harley Ford uh, label that uh, had some information on individual aircraft. Uh, There's one book on fighter aircraft, one book on reconnaissance and bomber aircraft that had statistics on speed and the uh, rate of climb and that sort of thing and background information on the characteristics of these different planes. So yes, going to the library and doing historical research with whatever books you could find, um, that was that was how it was done. Uh, interestingly, in the, in the 50 years since then, there's been a ton more research done um, in the field of World War I aviation and aircraft performance and operations and squadrons, Jagdstaffels and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the internet provides a great uh, uh, resource as well, especially for photos, for instance. Um, but there's no substitute for going to the library and as many sources as you can find. Uh, ideally, you would want primary sources, but uh, uh, other than uh, contemporary accounts during the war um you know there's not a, not as much other than that is not as useful as some of the um research that's been going on but even today in 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 the 2020s um there's some really excellent uh, books on world war one aviation coming out so that's the long answer to yeah we went to the library okay. or i did and um in the game the list of names that you had in there how did you generate that list of names for you mean for characters for- yeah uh, well, I simply uh, the names of characters in there is simply to provide examples. Uh, there's a couple points worth making here uh, regarding the Fight in the Skies game, and uh, that is it was one of the very first, if not the first, game to feature level advancement. In in the Fight in the Skies game, if you're uh, creating a 
character to be Lieutenant John Doe, for instance, who flies sop with camels, um, and you you know you create that character. There's no background uh, or ratings like there would be in D and D. You don't have uh, charisma and wisdom or intelligence and that sort of thing. But you do have a character, and you assign a name to him, and you take him into the uh, the board game, the, and you have a dogfight against German planes, and if you survive, you tally a mission. And every time you get a stop with Camel and you take up Lieutenant John Doe, as long as he can stay alive and survive, he tallies a mission. So uh, here's here's where the uh, level advancement comes from. When you fly John Doe on his first mission, chance to hit an enemy pilot, you put hit, hits into the cockpit or the center wing where the uh, enemy pilot is located, you get a bonus throw uh, of two dice. And if you roll doubles, uh, snake eyes on your first mission, it's a pilot hit but only snake eyes. If you're on your second mission, you've got one under your belt. Your pilot has a uh, mission under his belt. He's on a second mission and he gets that same chance to hit the pilot. Then it's double ones or double twos. Well, that's level advancement. And if you're on your third to 12th mission in such instances, double ones, double twos, and double threes. And if you survive 12 missions or score five kills for your pilot, five aerial victories, you become an ace or experienced, either 12 missions or five kills. You go up a level, you have better capabilities. Then you're hitting on double ones through fours on those chances. And if you become a, a big ace, 15 or more kills, um, then double one, any doubles, double ones through double sixes. So there's there's level advancement at the rudimentary level, but unquestionably it is uh, level advancement. Cool. Wait, and when did when did role playing? Because so what you're describing, of course, is a role playing aspect in a, in a certain regard to fight in the skies. Because right, you play, you play a fight or you have level advancement. What is the is there a relationship between the level advancement that you created for fight in the skies and then level advancement in D and D? Um, no, they're both level advancement, but, but I wouldn't say one sprung from the other. My point is simply that we were doing it in, you know, 1967, 68, 69, um, you know, in a rudimentary way, but nonetheless, that's, that's level advancement. So, uh, we're also creating characters, uh, now that these characters were all the same in terms of their capabilities, um, but we were creating fictional characters. We'd have rosters of pilots, um, which we keep. And in fact, I still have a roster that I keep. And um, everybody who plays the game creates these pilots, and they're assigned to different airplanes. And so, uh, in any in any given game, you're put in with other players uh, when you're flying a. Um, Falls D3 or whatever, and they bring up their false pilots, and you match them with yours, and that becomes the German flight. And, of course, on the opposing side, French, British, American, or Belgian, you know, they're doing the same with their pilots. So you always get a mix, generally in a dogfight, uh, uh, a mix of experience. You might have some aces, you might have some rookie pilots, and so on. So it adds adds to the, uh, uh, I think, the interest level and, uh, you know, the variability of results. Do they have a picture of their family that they keep with them? How many, chil- <laughs> how many children they have? That so it's what? when you when you shoot down Jacques Cousteau, they you, you know, feel bad. Babette and her th- and the three children were shot, Aww. lost. They're orphans. They're, have to be orphans. Uh, well, like any role playing, you can create as much of a backstory as you like, and and when why not? Yeah. But you got to be a fighter. Sorry. Do we have other questions from the, the chat? Well, not right now. Well, okay. Like I said, because I know we haven't, I know there's a few things like don't give up the ship we haven't gone over. There's just, I mean, Mike's yeah. story is so prolific. So I yeah, because that's a Gary Gygax connection, right? Don't give up the ship. Uh, well, and, actually, don't give up the ship. Uh, started with Dave Arneson, yeah. Naval Rules. Uh, he wanted to, he, he, 
he's Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax were both very fascinated with the age of sale. And by the age of sale, I mean, 1750 to 1820 was really the, the golden age of that before steam steamships and uh, armor and uh, more formidable naval vessels came onto the scene. So they both had a, a, a pretty serious deep knowledge of, of, uh, naval warfare in that era, which of course the highlight of which was the Napoleonic Wars, which went on for uh, more than 20 years. So Dave Arneson had, as part of this Napoleonic campaign that we were playing, he had created some, uh, he called it rules for the fighting age, the age of fighting sale or something like that. And uh, Gary Gygax heard about that was pretty interesting and and they were corresponding. And this was against the days of the IFW and so on. So uh, Arneson sent him the rules and Gygax uh, added certain things and it kind of developed from there. And we did a lot of play testing of don't give up the ship because we would use it as the basis for any of the naval battles that were occurring uh, as part of uh, Dave Arneson's Napoleonic campaign. So played it a lot and, you know, kind of polished it up. And then that became one of the uh, early publications that Gary suggested uh, for uh, Guide on Games. And then when TSR uh, came onto the scene, that was one of TSR's early booklets. And keep, keep in mind, TSR stands for, stood for Tactical Studies Rules, and they were a producer initially, uh, just starting out of uh, rule booklets for miniatures war, miniature warfare, and uh, that certainly fit in that. Now, I know that, so because I, I definitely want to talk about the fours, because you had said, the fours to the, the three AD&D books, you'd said okay. that you put a lot of effort into it because you knew people would be reading it. Now, I don't know for a while. Now, I don't know if you expected people to be reading it in 2020, but you wanted, <laughs> you wanted it to hold up. So I would like to go through the five guidelines, a few simple guidelines to make the game experience fun for everyone. So this is to telling players. This is in the Player's Handbook. Player's Handbook, page two, June 2nd, 1978. Where were you in June 2nd, 1978? Tell us now, Mike. (laughs) I was uh, writing that, (laughs) writing forward. Well done, well done. You can't trip him up. He's done, yeah. So here are the five guys. So let's see if... If Mike is correct, well, it was these, correct. Now let's see held if, it's, up. if it's held up. It right. will. If he's clear, right. Have they held up? Number one, be an organized player. Have the necessary information on your character readily at hand and available to the dungeon master. Did no, James, no do you one agree? does. No, I, it is, but no one does it. I, they, I'm just reading these to get James angry. Yeah, because no one does it. Out of curiosity, for these five, so where did you come up with these five? Because were you were you playing? Um, D and D when you were at TSR. Um, yes, yeah. From time to time, we're doing a lot of different things, playtesting quite a bit in the sometimes in the afternoon on the clock, uh, sometimes in, you know in the evening as well. So yeah, we were playtesting lots of different things, and especially as the staff grew and the number of of uh, games under consideration or modules or so on. Yeah, there was a lot of playtesting going on. That point number one: be organized. Um, I think one of the one of the worst uh, sins uh, in role-playing is when there's a lot of time wasted. Either the dungeon master's not organized or the players go off on some tangent or they start squabbling or whatever. So um, part of the uh, the DM's job is keep everybody on task. And, of course, players have responsibility, too, and that was the point that I was making. If you're organized and, you know, he said, what's your armor class? You can say, well, I'm, you know, this is my armor class, and you can give them the answer right away if you're organized and you know you've got your your act together and so on. So, so I 
think, yeah, that's that's part of it. And if at any point in time there's a specific TSR employee that you had in mind for any of these, feel free to let us know. Right. But it's I'm like just... any pol- it's like any HR policy. There's someone's name behind it, right? <laughs> they know who they are. They know who they are. Okay. Number two, cooperate with the dungeon master and respect his decisions. If you disagree, present your viewpoint with deference to his position as game moderator. Be prepared to accept his decision as final. And remember that not everything in the game will always go your way, exclamation point. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an important point. And, and when, I run, uh, when I run Don't Give Up the Ship games at Gary Khan or Gen, I'm going to run one at Gen Con, uh, that's a point I always make to the players. Um, you know, I'm the game master. Uh, my job as a game master is to create a scenario that's going to be fairly balanced and, you know, not slanted. Uh, I'm the neutral uh, arbiter of, of the, uh, the game or adventure. And I want, you know, my goal is to make, have everybody have a good time. Um, and I've got to make decisions every once in a while. And uh, if you question my decision, that's fine. Uh, you can certainly raise any point. Uh, my decision has to be final. I will certainly listen to any, uh, you know, any logical objection or uh, uh, point of omission that I might not have thought of. And uh, to be honest, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, infallible. So uh, occasionally uh, a player can raise a good point. And, you know, that's right. You should probably take that into account or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's part of the mutual respect between the players and the dungeon master. You know, the dungeon master is the boss, um, but hopefully he's a benevolent and beneficent uh, boss that, uh, you know, will help the players and uh, without making it overly simple or overly difficult, challenge them, puzzle them once in a while and uh, listen to what they have to say. And I, being a dungeon master is pretty entertaining at times. A game master, you know, you listen to the, what the players are thinking and sometimes you think, oh man, they're really on the right track or sometimes like, man, where are they going with this? I can't believe they're, you know, getting so far off off topic here or away from the challenge at, at hand or whatever it happens to be. So, uh, you know, it's, it's really a cooperative venture. And, and I think as you have gaming groups, I mean, there's a lot of gaming groups where you play with the same, you know, six or eight people every time, you know, people aren't going to be, and they're not going to stay in that group unless they're personable, reasonable, not too goofy, um, that keep, uh, keep the task in, at, at hand in mind and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's like any other, uh, group of people, if you don't fit in, you know, they're not going to invite you back. Did you have the privilege of being in a game where Gary was the DM? Um, yeah, nothing that I, resp- that I recall specifically. Um, but meh. on a couple, his man, <laughs> it wasn't memorable. Yeah. Well, he was behind, he was behind the filing cabinet. Yeah. We he- heard that he would like sometimes, and I don't know if it's apocryphal and only happened once, but he would run games behind a filing cabinet so you couldn't see him. I, I, he doesn't remember. I don't That's the, Certainly maybe, is not. Out. Maybe you walked by and you didn't realize he was running the game. <laughs> you thought it was like a staff this guy's meeting. Hanging out. It's a staff meeting. It was on my calendar. What are they doing over there? <laughs> I'm being I'm being pushed out. That's right. Why was it uninvited? Okay. Number three. Cooperate with the other players and respect their right to participate. See, people the players didn't read no. the foreword. Cooperate with other they players. They skipped right to how to annoy people. Exactly. Right. Encourage new and novice players by making suggestions and allowing them to make decisions on courses of action rather than dictating their responses. You know, if people listen to this, there would be no YouTube channels because literally everything is there. But people argue about this for the last 45 years. 
Right. This how how to run a game. Just read the five things that Mike gave you. All right, great. It's, it's so life, life lessons. So yeah, it could be that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's amazing what people will argue about. You know, especially when they're on the same team. They're uh, you know the same right. group. Of, uh, you know, or you're challenging the dungeon master. Obviously, the dungeon master has to have a base of uh, a strong uh, knowledge of the rules and uh, the processes and so on to you know to kind of make it happen. Um, but nobody's nobody's infallible, and uh, you know, as a player, you should be again. Everybody participating in the dungeon master and all the players. The whole idea is to have some fun, so you you know you know you should keep that in mind all the time. And number four, if you are unable to participate in an adventure, give the other players and the DM some concrete guidelines if your character is going to be included in the adventuring group. Be prepared to accept the consequences, good or bad, in any case. And I think we all know what Mike is talking about here, yes. right? The character death, I assume you're death. talking about, Could right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if you can't, if you can't play on a particular evening with your group, I mean, if you're going to want your player to your character to be included, then yeah, you have to suffer whatever happens. You know, hopefully, uh, hopefully good things happen and probably do most of the time, but bad things can happen. And, you know, that could create some acrimony and stuff. So um, yeah, you have to be willing to take the consequences good or bad. You, player quit. you know, huh? yeah. Yeah. If my character's on an adventure and I'm not there, and he discovers a, you know, a cool treasure, assuming the the other people don't uh, take it away and uh, not tell me, um, you know, that's a cool thing. But also, you know, if I'm grievously wounded or suffer some curse or something, you know, you have to, you have to go with that. So, you know, I would caution people: don't don't uh, lend out your character to an adventure if you're not there without a willingness to accept the consequences. And um, but that's tough to. That is tough to do. Well, we had a player quit. Our guest, she didn't show up, and right. she died. And she died. She wasn't happy. That was it. That was it. Well, I should have. Obviously, I should have followed rule four, which is you need to get the in advance. Right. What what the what the agreement is. Number five. I get in the spirit of the game and use your persona to play with a special personality all its own. Interact with the other player character and non-player characters to give the game campaign a unique flavor and life. Above all, let yourself go and enjoy. Shocking. Yeah. So uh, that's that's very important. I mean, this is an unfolding story, and you as a player are a part of it. And uh, and why you know why don't be shy. Uh, be part of be part of the story, and and uh, take your part in it. it. That's part of the what makes it so cool and so uh, so much of uh, a pleasure to participate. Because a you don't know what's going to happen. B anything can happen. C you may be able to affect what happens. So uh, you know that's part of what really drives the whole the whole concept and what really makes it fun i to, to go back well, i don't know if that was number three or whatever um when new players come there's a tendency for the experienced players to kind of dictate well you should do this or you should do that that's stupid or whatever um so you kind of have to uh kind of rein that in I, let let the new people make decisions themselves and the new players you know don't be don't be overly critical or too uh, demanding or dominant is is part of what I would say. I I, I have a, a good example is um, Tim Cask was running a game uh, for for beginners uh, at GaryCon, and I was giving a tour to somebody, uh, and we met 
with Tim and my friend said, Oh, can we play in playing this game? I said, sure. I said, I'm your tour guide today. We'll do whatever you like. So we went and played in Tim Cask's game. And uh, as an aside here, I don't know if he talked about this when, uh, when you interviewed him as he said, ah, I've run so many adventures. I used to love to kill off players and people would play one. They want to play in my games just to see how I'd kill them off. He said, but now since, you know, since I've come through a cancer scare and all that, he said, I, I have a whole different viewpoint. I want them to have fun. And he said, and I've run so many adventures. I just, all I do is ask them to put down two, two ideas on a index card index yep. card and, and them into me and so on. So anyway, we're having an adventure and there were, we had, we had to find seven different things with seven different encounters. And we had seven, I think we had seven players. Anyway, we got to this, uh, place that was uh it was like a big uh brick silo or something it was just a small opening to go in and there was grain or something else i don't know we didn't know what was inside and and uh we had a, a thief in our group and <laughs> this thief says i'm not going in there that you know it's probably dark i don't know what's it i'm not going in and i said wait a minute here i got it let me explain we're all in this adventure we all have we all have special abilities depending on what our character class is. I said, and you're the thief, you know, you can climb walls, you can uh, do things in, uh, you know, in the darkness and, you know, you've got this stealthiness to you, you know, and you can get in that opening and we need you to go in there because you're our guy for that task. And, you know, well, okay. He sucked it up and then he went and we found, you know, he found what we needed to find in there. So uh, as nice as possible, you know, I tried to emphasize to him that, you know, you're the man for the task here, and this is your moment. So it all worked out. Excellent. Sounds like our dirty ruddy cheeks from our prior right. segment. Yeah. The thief who, who flees. Uh, and then the one thing I wanted to ask you about the Ford and the DMG, because the very first two sentences say, is dungeon mastering an art or a science an interesting question? Uh, I wonder, it, how, what are your thoughts on that in 2020? So you gave your thoughts on that in 1979. What are your thoughts 40 years later? Um, without question, I think it's both. Um, and as I cite there in the following sentences, um, you know, if you look at this, this, and this, it's definitely an art in how you run the game and you put your own spin on it, your own style as a dungeon master. Um, but it's also science. You need to, you know, have familiarity with the rules and the processes and the combat and the initiative and all that sort of thing. So you can keep it running smoothly. So, um, I, I think it's both, and still it was, and I think still is. And just as an interesting aside, we had Jody Lynn Nye on the show, who I don't know if you know this, she actually typed the man, she was in college, uh, she's married to Bill Fawcett, and she typed the manuscript for these oh. three. So yeah, it sounds like it was a no. I didn't know if Jody Lynn was like, you're like, where's that the... Was her, that was her job at one point. Yeah. So... Um, well, I want to make sure we, because we're getting yep, uh, yep. about 15 minutes left. Yeah. Uh, wanna... Keep going. I'll be I'll be happy to go over if you like. Okay, we'll keep going. Oh, okay. Well, I was just going to. Then, unfortunately, all good things come to an end, and you were part of one of the waves, unfortunately, of layoffs. Right? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Right? The, the, the layoffs came in waves. Um, before I answer the question, I, I do want to say that um, this entire story of TSR uh, and Dave Arneson and Gary Gygus is told extremely well. In the the new By book John, that came yeah, out last John Peterson, yeah, John Peterson. Um, other than the fact that he had to cut his manuscript down from eighty thousand words to one hundred thirty thousand <laughs> words, which I think, uh, well, that was a publisher's decision, not his. Um, it's other than that, 
really a superb book and really tells the story well, and uh, including the the implosion of the company, which you're referring to now. So, yeah, I was in the third or fourth wave uh, of people let go in 1983. And you had a story about Al Hammock, I believe, coming up to you. Right? So, so you've, yeah. how did you find out you've been laid off? Well, when they, <laughs> it's, it's, well, first of all, it's usually on Friday. Um, and when they call you into human resources, that's your clue. And that's not the only other, that's not the only time in my life that I've been let go from a job. So, um, uh, the first time I guess is the most right. unpleasant or unhappy. And I suppose probably 90% of the uh, listeners or viewers here have gone through similar experiences, hopefully not too many times. Um, but the, you know, it was obvious that the company was on the downslide and that uh, there was financial challenges and so on. And, you know, groups of employees had been let go. And in fact, as a supervisor, sometimes you had to suggest, you know, who off of your staff of seven, we're going to cut your staff of seven to five. Who are the two that, you know, we should let go? Um, and that's obviously one of the most unpleasant jobs any supervisor or boss ever has to has to go through. So, um on the day when I was let go, um, I was packing up my my desk and emptying my desk out and putting it in a box. And Alan Hammock, who had worked there almost as long as I had, he came after I did, but he came up to me and he said, Mike, aren't, aren't you kind of upset or a little bit bitter about this? You were one of the first people to come to work here at Gary's Invitation, and you've been here for seven plus years, and now they're putting you out on the street. I said, well, it's been a great run. I really loved working here. I, I'm sorry to, that I have to leave. Uh, but, you know, Al, sometimes when one door closes, another door opens. And as much of a cliche as that is, that is exactly what happened to me. Um, within some weeks later, I happened to pick up the Wall Street Journal one day. It was the one day the job ads ran. I had not picked up the Wall Street Journal for six months prior to that particular day. It was a Tuesday when the job ads ran. And there was an ad for Commodity Futures Trader in Chicago. And at TSR, I had proposed doing a game on Commodity Futures Trading because it's like the stock market, only even way more exciting and different. And as part of the prep for that, uh, my roommate, one of my seven roommates, Jim Quinn and I uh, had gone to Milwaukee on four Wednesday nights for a 90-minute session to learn about commodities trading and stuff. So I had a, a rudimentary knowledge of that. So I answered this ad in the Wall Street Journal. Um, turned out to be life-changing, um, benefit for me. Uh, I got down, uh, they sent out a questionnaire, uh, 67 true false questions about trading. So with this four week mini course that I had, I had a clue on doing that. Um, they asked questions like how important is money to you? Uh, would you rather be good or lucky? Why? Who's your favorite person from history? Why? Uh, what's your favorite book or movie? Why? So got called down to an interview. And at the interview, I said something like, well, did you get 100 uh, applications in response to this journal? And they said, we got 1,100 applications. We're going to interview 40 people, at which point I thought, man, I'm just lucky to be here. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to twelve. And so I was one of the 12 hired. And that particular episode um, is chronicled in several books, uh, including the uh, the market wizards and the, or the new market wizards. And so I've been interviewed about that experience similar to this 
podcast uh, about that because that's been a that was a pretty uh, outstanding experience where a gentleman Richard Dennis, legendary futures trader, took on a bunch of beginners and taught us how to trade. So I always tell people I'm one of the luckiest guys around. I've had lightning strike twice. I I was. I had a ringside seat for the whole D&D phenomenon, and then I happened to be part of this group, which was nicknamed the Turtles, and that became legendary in the commodity futures business as well. So um, it's just, uh, I'm, I still can't believe my good fortune, being in the right place at the right time, which makes me think of at the Dungeon Hobby Shop uh, Museum in Lake Geneva at the building at 723 Williams. Uh, they've created a Mike Carr Corner with uh, featuring different things that I've done. And so I wrote a thing for them and I titled it Mike Carr, a gamer who is in the right place at the right time. So that's why uh, I became uh, a pivotal figure in the history of TSR, being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right people. And I couldn't, I couldn't have plotted it out better. At any point in time in between being laid off at TSR and getting hired to be the futures trader, did you think that you might have to return to being a manager at the ground round? Um, well, it certainly crossed my mind. Uh, there's a lot of restaurants around. So if you're a cook or a waitress or a restaurant manager, I think you can always find a job. Um, what I was planning to do is I, prior to leaving TSR, I, um, after I was demoted, um, which is stories told very, very well, um, in, in the, in the game wizards book, um, I I was uh, in the uh, book department, and I got to write several children's books. And I'd written Robbers and Robots was a endless quest book with you know multiple endings and multiple choice book, which were quite the quite the popular rage at the time. Uh, and that book sold a quarter of a million copies. So my my thoughts were after being released at TSR, I could uh, possibly write uh, children's books. Uh, of one sort or another, and maybe make a go of it. And uh, fortunately, I saw the ad in the Wall Street Journal, and that led to, um, you know, getting into the world of finance and did that for oh, probably 10 years. So that's pretty And how's fun. your oil futures now? Do you have, how's that looking right now? I know you yeah, did. Do you have any suggestions? Any suggestions? Are you looking for any? some tips? Yeah, oil or Bitcoin or NFTs, you mm-hmm. know, I, they, they seem very promising. Maybe we should go public. Right. right? If you're going to speculate, which is what a lot of this is, uh, especially with uh, uh, Bitcoin and that sort of thing, um, you know, do it with money that you could afford to lose. And uh, if you invest in futures, there are futures funds that you can, uh, you know, your money gets pooled with everybody else. And then a professional fund manager participates in Same. buying soybean futures or treasury bond futures or Japanese yen or, you know, dollar index and that sort of thing. Uh, let the pros do it, you know, just like a mutual fund, only futures related. So when I got out of the business, I put some of my uh, assets with uh, a couple of former colleagues, and they've done pretty well. Maybe Mike can handle our patron funds. Right, the, the massive funds that we get from patron. Yeah. We'll, talk, yeah. <laughs> well, that and, I, you know, I was going to take my Bitcoin losses and then part plow that into the NFT market, which is more speculative. And then uh, I see baby. Oh, yeah. and if, I don't understand. I don't understand the appeal of NFTs. It just doesn't seem to be, I, I don't know. That just seems too, uh, too, too much out there. Uh, but uh, you know, Bitcoin is crashed. So if you believe in Bitcoin as the 
primary um, cryptocurrency, which I think inarguably it is the primary one, uh, the fact that the price crashed and it's low, you know, that that's worth taking a flyer on. Buy it when it's low. I did four times. I thought it was low. Oh. The Lou Dobbs show. <laughs> but, Lou Dobbs. No, I mean, he, this man is, uh, you know, again, we're very fortunate when we interview these folks because they've not only had a successful career and they have a legacy, but they've done, you know, they've done great things. I so I'm, I wasn't looking for it. I was looking for advice, but and of course. Do you need money? We, well, we always heard need money. Okay. <laughs> I got a 20. A- Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I would make the point, and I have made the point before, that if you're a gamer, you've got, I think, a leg up on the average person because as a gamer, you're constantly being challenged with uncertain situations, um, unknown resources, uh, potential allies or or, uh, adversaries. And as a gamer, in whatever that situation is, you've got to assess that. You've got to decide upon a course of action, and you've got to hopefully cooperate when you can find uh, those who can ally with you and help you or, or people in positions of power who can help you or have resources to help you and so on. And those sorts of uh, thinking on your feet, um, ways of looking at, at uh, game situations can be very, I think, helpful in real life. Um, and the, the, the story I always like to tell, which is pretty simple and everybody understands is, uh, if we're on our way to downtown Milwaukee, my wife and I, and we've got a concert at eight o'clock and we get down there at seven twenty. you know, instead of going in the ramp and paying $10, you know, let's play the parking game. Let's, let's spend five or 10 minutes cruising around the streets to see if we can get a meter for two bucks, uh, instead of paying the ramp for 10. So, you know, do we have time to play the parking game? Well, as a gamer, that's how you kind of look at it. And, and so there's so many, uh, when you take a new job, you have to learn about your boss and your coworkers and the ones you can rely on and the ones who are, you know, not worth, <laughs> not worth spending a lot of time with because they, you know, they can't help you. And what do you, what resources do you have and that sort of thing? So all these things that are, are, coming out of the gaming world can definitely help you in real life. And you're trying to find a mate, who are you going to, you know, date or marry and, you know, how are you going to get their attention and that sort of thing? And is, is this person going to be a good life partner? I mean, that's kind of on the grand scale. I don't want to oversell this, but nonetheless, I think anybody that's a gamer can kind of uh, see the, the point that I'm making that uh, what you learn in the gaming uh, world and, and how you approach that can certainly help you in your real life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, if if the, I'm surprised there hasn't been a business book about being a dungeon master because being a dungeon master ties directly into management. Um, you know the handling of a group dynamic, getting people who have to work well together, dealing with problem players. All that right. is so authority issues, huh? Authority, authority yeah, yeah, authority issues. The whole preface. Yeah, when you when you lose a job, you're out of work. You know, bingo. Now, okay. Bingo! The, after the shock wears off, what are you going to do? Uh, you're going to try to stay in your field, go in a different field, yeah. um, take a temporary job, something. You know, what are your opportunities uh, geographically? Where are you? How much money do you have in the bank? Do you have kids to feed, uh, et cetera, et cetera? You got to assess that. And I think being a gamer can only be helpful in such situations because you can, I think, maybe a little more um, reasonably assess your current situation and your prospects and your potential resources and your allies or connections and et cetera, et cetera. So well, that's the new, that's the new book Mike has to write. Reaction Roll, How to Deal with Life's Events. Yeah, Reaction Roll. Reaction Roll, Life's, <laughs> the business book. I mean, the business book is three pages of real useful information and then 150 pages of anecdote, which you have 
You have yeah, tons of stories. So three pages of being, you take your preface that you wrote 44 years ago. That's the things you sell, change it to business, and then 150 pages of anecdotes. You're welcome, Mike. You, you, Next thing you know, you know you're a, a business guru. Then you're yeah. going to speak, you're doing speaking engagements. They're paying you a lot more than they're paying you for, for, for Gary Khan or Dave Khan. You got thousands of people. <laughs> you get merch. We'll, we'll talk about this. The Kickstarter, we've got. Oh, so now you're an agent, too. Whole nother that's a whole okay. other thing. You're I an mean, agent. Uh, well, you know, okay. that's, that's what we have to do. What, what, else, what else you got? What else you got? What Oh, I've got an important. Oh, yes, I'd be very unhappy if I didn't ask this question, though you may not remember. Uh, speaking of anecdotes, is there any any part of the Holy Trinity that you remember when you were editing? You remember going back to Gary and saying, "Gary, this doesn't make sense. You got to clarify this." Um, nothing major. Maybe on some of the combat tables, uh, it just needed to be explained a little better. Um, and that's 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 the job of the editor is to you know get an explanation. So sometimes we'd have to add a sentence or two to to further uh, explain a concept or a procedure. Uh, and then once in a while, with a particular magical spell, uh, we'd need you know need a little clarification about uh, the effect of it or the component material components needed or um, the effectiveness or you know the the scope of it you know how much. How far away can it uh, have an effect, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think in minor in minor cases, getting clarification like that, yes. Nothing, I don't recall anything major that was uh, unexplained. Okay, okay. So, I, I so had to ask. Uh, and, you know, you, you mentioned uh, your obviously your long career. What are you doing today? I know we've we talked about your um, you know, your writing as an author. You're still you're still doing gaming. So, you know, what, what's Mike Carr doing today to keep himself interested in, and things that he's promoting right now, besides the Kickstarter, which you mentioned as well? Yeah, I uh, have, uh, after, after I left TSR and, and very fortuitously got into the finance business, that ran its course in the mid-90s. Then I decided I was going to do freelance writing. And fortunately, I'd, I'd done well in the commodity business and... Uh, my wife said that doesn't pay very much, does it? Freelance. I said no, it doesn't. But I'm not too proud to, you know, write advertorials and that sort of thing, which I did for a little while. I said the whole idea when in freelance writing is you use one assignment and a, a product as a stepping stone to the next, and you show it at the next higher level, and eventually maybe you're writing for Esquire or something like that. But um, as part of the freelance uh, writing, I did. Um, some interviews. Uh, I was asked by a magazine, "Would you like to interview some CEOs of companies about themselves and their company?" And I said, "Oh yeah, that sit down one on one with uh, CEOs and captains of industry. You bet." So one of those was with Robert Kearney, the founder of Generac Power Systems, which is in Southeast Wisconsin. Okay, and we we really hit it off. They do standby generators, and it's a huge, huge company. Yeah, can, so can you get me a discount on those? Because we we need them here in I, Florida. I, we would love to get. I mean, can you get a two for one? <laughs> I, I, Everybody needs. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any contacts there anymore. Uh, but anyway, we really hit it off in the interview, and they said, we have a big writing project coming up, a corporate document. Would you be available? I said, yeah, I'm freelance. Absolutely. Then they offered, after I did that, they were really pleased with it. They offered me a full-time job. I ended up working there seven years as manager of marketing communications. Uh, and so this came about through an av- a very modest avenue. You know, Would you like to do an interview with CEOs? And bingo, it led to a full-time job at a very nice salary for seven years. I actually earned a real pension, believe it or not. Uh, and then when that ran its course, I decided I was going to do other freelance 
stuff uh, writing, which I did. And um, I am a very avid snowmobiler, which started uh, in 1969. Mm. And to this this day, I'm still a very avid snowmobiler. Done a lot of writing for snowmobile magazines and that sort of thing. Um, And most recently, now I'm uh, in essence retired um, and enjoying my uh, golden years, hopefully many more to come. And uh, doing freelance writing, and one of the current projects is a children's book that I wrote back in 2001 and 2002, copyrighted it. I couldn't find a publisher at the time, so the bad news is I've sat on this book for 20 years, but the good news is in those 20 years, now there's Kickstarter. So the fact that I couldn't find a publisher back in the day uh, is going to, you know, the dynamic is going to change because now through Kickstarter, I'll be able to not only raise funds for this project, which is important, but even more important, I think, is the avenues of promotion that are possible. I'm not a, I'm not a guy on social media, but I know a lot of people in the snowmobile and recreation industry and also through the gaming industry, and several people said, oh, we'll be happy to help promote that when the time comes. So it's a rhyming children's book, and um, I'm working on uh, nailing down permission for the number of photographs that i'm using and that sort of thing well yeah just let us know the link to your kickstarter we'll be happy to put that on our twitter and and youtube and everything else we'd always love to support that i mean i guess children's books in 2001 september 11th that would be maybe they weren't Mm. so interested in it wasn't a book a children's book about 2000 uh september 11th right no it's uh it's a rhyming children's book called girls and boys big toys it's all about things that get kids and adults excited like Hot air balloons, monster trucks, snowmobiles, ATVs, power boats, speed boats, sailboats, glider planes, stunt biplanes, motorcycles, cruiser bikes, oh, okay. on and on. Um, I, I did you get my sample that I sent? I don't. I have not received it yet. No, you you, you mailed it, right? You're doing right? yeah, hard copy. Yeah, no, I've not yeah, received I mailed, it. Yet. Yeah, I mailed it. In fact, I made sure it got in the mail before the Fourth of July holiday. So it would get to you this week. But anyway, mm-hmm. hopefully you enjoy it. Well, we'll, we'll, well, we'll look at it and put on next. We'll do a book review next time. Indeed. Uh, well, by all means, when the time for the Kickstarter comes, I would certainly appreciate, uh, even if you talk about it for five minutes on your uh, podcast, that could only help at the time. So when the time comes, which I think is sometime in the fall, uh, I'm going to do the Kickstarter and then hopefully publish publish it in the uh, maybe in the spring or whatever. Yeah. So I have high... But I, I, I think you'll like it. I'm, I'm very proud of it. The rhymes are really solid. There's 40, 40 different rhymes in there. It's a 48-page book. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's got possibilities. And uh, let me give you the, uh, the opening. Is, um, the opening intro is, Girls and boys love great big toys. That's just a fact, you know. We love those things with great big wings and cars that don't go slow. Trucks that roar and planes that soar, we just can't get enough. We dream the day when we will play with all that kind of stuff. But little guys, despite their size, can sometimes get a ride to get a feel up close for real and know that thrill inside. So that's the intro. Oh, wow. Very nice. then, I feel like writing a then, song about it. I mean, that's like, he's like a rap. You rapper. could do a song. Like, it's like a rap, he's like a rap star. Yeah. I mean, that's some good bars there. That's yeah. that's pretty good, Mike. So all, all, all the rhymes in the book, and, so there's... There's two pages on monster trucks, uh, facing pages, with two rhymes, with a rhyme on each page. Uh, cruiser bikes, there's two p- pictures on, on facing pages with rhymes. Sailboats, two, two pictures, two rhymes. Snowmobiles, two pictures, two rhymes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all in the same cadence, and the stanzas are all the same, so with the, with the rhymes in the same place. So um, I, think you'll, I think you'll like it. So Absolutely. when the time comes... I- your help. Uh, I've got high hopes for it. I really think. Oh, yeah. 
Well, you should have high hopes. I mean, you've everything you've put your mind to. I mean, again, you're a teenager. You write a game that's been around for 50 years. You 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 have no knowledge of. Uh, I mean, you do new gaming, but you didn't know fantasy, and you've you're in one of the most famous modules. You've uh, your name is forwarded there. I mean, that's pretty. You have a lot of uh, luck of kismet there. So that's I think that yeah, says a lot about that. So that's great. I've been in the right place at the right time, and I think. Uh, I, I guess it's been proven. I've got the skill set to do that sort of thing. So I think this book could be a hit, and uh, it's a it's a shame that it didn't get uh, you know accepted by a publisher earlier. But I've added to it. I'm going to put a new copyright 2022 copyright on it. Most likely, I've added a couple of I've added cruiser bikes and ice boats uh, to the mix, and uh, you know I think it, I think it be, could be a hit. What about um, what about Segway? Can you do something with Segway? Okay. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, something like a segue. The um, segue. James, I think he's got it covered. He's fine. <laughs> he's he's yeah. rollerblading. Well, he's been successful oh, to this point. I didn't know if he was looking for. Your, I don't know if no, he was looking for other he, types of uh, devices for them to move. You're on. Yeah, you would have screwed up B one. <laughs> should be a Balrog. <laughs> it should be a Balrog. <laughs> Why? They, they just left the town. No, there should be a Balrog. And you're also been involved the J, the Geneva Lake Museum. Lake, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Lake Geneva Museum has this project, the Wizard of Lake Geneva, and you're involved with this as well. Is that correct? Yes. Um, in its heyday, TSR employed over 300 people and was really an economic force in Lake Geneva, but never really got on the radar screen of, of the residents or the city fathers. Um, uh, you know, the company really didn't get its due in its day for, uh, for what it was. Um, and that's why, um, TSR company, when the Lucius Newberry was, uh, which was a, uh, steamboat on Lake Geneva sunk in the 1890s and, uh, they discovered it and we're going to raise it. TSR provided some of the seed money for that project. And that was partly, uh, uh, public public relations. Is that the grog uh, line? Partly a, they want to know why he's late for his dog That's right. They, game. They're like, hey, are you coming still, Mike? <laughs> We're all waiting. <laughs> We're all waiting for you. Uh, by by making a donation for raising the new, Newberry, the, you know, TSR got, finally got everybody's attention. So now, 40 plus years later, um, the city of Lake Geneva and people in the city of Lake Geneva and at the Geneva Lake Museum have realized that uh, this was quite something quite unique. Not only did local boy Gary Gygax spearhead this whole thing and, and make it happen, um, the TSR company had quite a quite a run for from uh, you know 1974 to 1994, and so there's a great great story to tell there uh, about Gary Gygax and about the TSR company and about Dungeons and Dragons. So the Geneva Lake Museum is. Um, The Geneva Lake Museum is uh, going to have a 500-square-foot exhibit um, featuring those three aspects. Awesome. And Paul, Paul Stromberg and I are the co-curators. We're providing the, the meat of the, uh, of the information in the exhibit for that. So it's taking shape. There's uh, hopefully going to be a Kickstarter maybe in the fall about it. Uh, people can get on board with this. And uh, it's going to be a big deal. And that's only one of several things going on in Lake Geneva. There's the Dungeon Hobby Shop Museum, which is up and running. Like I said, that's where I'm headed to this afternoon. Um, there's a very ambitious proposal called the Griffin and Gargoyle out on the edge of town. I don't know if you've heard about that or not. It's a gaming tavern, hmm. um, and it's a very lavish, big 
place. Um, I'm, I, I will marvel at it all the more if they can raise the money. It's going to be a several million dollar project to do that where they have gaming tavern and, and medieval type food like uh, turkey legs and mead and ale and serving wenches and you can play games there. And There'll be a ground uh, where they maybe have a medieval fair and stuff. So that's pretty ambitious. That's on the edge of town. Uh, and then there's the uh, Gygax Memorial. There's a, a long-standing effort to uh, which Paul Stormberg uh, is working with Gail Gygax, Gary's widow, to um, uh, have a permanent monument in uh, hopefully Library Park at Lake Geneva to Gary Gygax and this whole phenomenon. Mm. So people, the interesting thing is people are already coming to Lake Geneva with not a lot to see other than they know that that's where the TSR company was. But now with all these different things uh, taking shape and coalescing, uh, it's going to really be a, a big boon to the city of Lake Geneva because it's going to bring people in not just in, during the summer, which is their high season. That's when uh, the, the city flourishes and is overflowing with tourists. But this is counter-seasonal. It's going to bring in uh, role-playing enthusiasts from literally probably from around the world uh, to, to see these things. And, and they're already coming with not a lot to see. Uh, and the fact that uh, um, Yolanda Fratani is the current, and her husband are the current owners of the, of the house at 330 Center Street, and you can be able to play games there. And there's a... Uh, B&B, where you can stay overnight. At the Dungeon and Hobby Shop uh, Museum, they can lodge one or two people. They have a uh, sleeping room upstairs, etc. The Geneva Lake Museum will be one more thing to see, etc., etc. So, um, as Paul Stormberg pointed out to the mayor of Lake Geneva, with enough attractions here, people aren't going to be able to make a day, day trip. They're going to have to stay overnight because there's going to be you know, two days worth of things to see here. And Lake Geneva is all about booking hotels and room nights because it's a tourist town. So, yeah. um, he said that the uh, you know the mayor of Lake Geneva she she got the concept she understood the, how important this was and then down the road you know in 2024 that's the 50th anniversary of the publication of D and D uh, and you know there's uh, a civic celebration is certainly in the cards for that and so I think it's pretty exciting so uh, for all of your uh, listeners and viewers you know you want to make the pilgrimage to Lake Geneva uh, it's going to be pretty cool you know in the next couple of years. Uh, when we go mass with all of these things, yeah. you know, it's really an attraction, and uh, and rightly so. Uh, you know, every city in in the world is looking for some some local famous person or some event happened there. Northfield, Minnesota, uh, south of the Twin Cities, or Jesse James had an abortive bank robbery there. Well, that there's Jesse James days. Um, you know, Delavan, ten miles from Lake Geneva. That's there. You know, they're the circus. You know. Ringling Brothers wintered there for several seasons in the 1880s or whatever, you know, so they've had circus days and circuit, you know, Lake Geneva has this uh, totally unique, there's nothing like it, uh, you know, there's no other city that can have boast of a heritage like this with local, uh, local boy Gary Gygax, you know, becomes a legendary figure in a particular field and this company was there and D&D and I mean, holy cow, you know, they're, they're remiss if they don't take advantage of this and I think finally, 45 years later, they're realizing they got something special here, and that's going to bring people to town. And when you're in the tourism and promotion business, that's what it's all about. They need Disney to buy Lake Geneva, because then they'd have rides, they'd have a theme yeah. park, mm-hmm. they'd have Balrogs in the marketplace in the Mr. center square there. Mr. Toad's Wild Mr. Ride. Toad's back. Wild. <laughs> that's right. That would be, that's, you know, we got to get uh, got to get Orlando again, plug for shameless Plug, we need to get Orlando North uh, mm-hmm. or Disney World North. And Orlando can I win? And then we have Dave Arneson World. That's right, because he worked here at Full Sail. In Orlando. He stayed yeah. here for a while. That's kind of like Key West. Yeah. Everything is Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway mm-hmm. threw up here. Ernest Hemingway passed out here. 
you go to Key West, it's all that uh, that kind of stuff. So, have the two of you been to Lake Geneva? Yes, he has. Oh, I have, have not yet. Yeah, I've been to GaryCon a couple times. Yeah. Okay. We'd like to do the yeah. show. We'd like to one at one point. I think we'd like to do the show. Right. From Lake Geneva, which would be pretty cool, and see some of these all these places that you're talking about. Well, the plan is if we can't go to both Gary Con and Dave Con, do one and maybe drive back. I know well, obviously Dave Con's up in Minneapolis, but you know there, there's also a couple other events there. But that's that's but now that now that we can stay at Mike's house, and then it's only an hour. Yeah, away. he always had all the roommates. He's right. the one with all the roommates. Yeah. So just like old times, you know, you just yeah, we would we would lodge. It, I, I'm right on the. I'm right on the way. Perfect. Yeah. So. Uh, it's a pretty exciting time. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of time has elapsed, but this game is bigger than ever. And um, w- through the efforts of people, I think the two preeminent gaming historians are John Peterson, um, who wrote the Game Wizards, and also Paul Stormberg, who runs, uh, you know, the auctioneer business. And they have such a deep knowledge of D&D, of Gary Gygax, of Dave Arneson, and so on, and a real you know, love of this hobby. Um, you know, they've really done a lot to enlighten people. I mean, the, the, the John Peterson book, for instance, um, you know, he had access to tons of memos behind the scenes stuff. I mean, I was there part of the story and I, I learned stuff in his book mm. that I was not aware. Of. And I was quite, before he published it, he said, Mike, would you read my manuscript? Um, you know, before I send it to MIT press. And I said, I'd be happy to, I'd be honored to. And he said, if you see anything that's off or whatever, or incorrect, you know, uh, please let me know. And so there was a couple minor things, um, but generally he did a great job. You know, as I said before, you know, the fact that he had to cut out 50,000 words, right. you know, means that uh, some good stuff didn't, didn't make the cut, unfortunately. And Paul Stormberg uh, has created a walking tour of Lake Geneva uh, that highlights um, a lot of the sites there. And that's going to be available for visitors Um in the future, and it's very comprehensive, maybe overly so in my opinion, but um, it's really going to be an attraction. Lake Geneva is really going to be uh, a mecca for, for gamers to come, and, and finally, after all these years, there's going to be a lot for them to see and do there, and that's where it happened. So I'm uh, I'm pretty happy. I'm only an hour away from Lake Geneva, so it's easy for me to go to Gary Con. We've also got Gamehole Con coming up. That's in November um, in Madison, and that's a big deal, too. If, if, if somebody uh, among the viewers... Uh, or um, people who participate uh, have not been to Madison for Gamehole Con, I would highly recommend that. That's at the end of October, and it's a big deal. It's a great convention for several days. They have the whole Alliant Energy Center this year for the first time, so that tells you the scope of it. And uh, they've run a true dungeon uh, adventure there and all sorts of other stuff. Oh, so, wow. That's awesome. Um, uh, I know I know. we've gone way over, and we really appreciate, Mike, you spending this much time with us. It was it was really our pleasure. We've got a couple of questions left. If you have just two more minutes, sure. Um, yep. So, when you uh, left TSR in '83, did you keep uh, doing anything with D and D, or is that pretty much that's when your participation with D and D ended in '83? That's pretty much when my participation ended. I was in touch with you know some of the people, and uh, I saw Gary once or twice after after that. Um, interestingly, I was back there visiting one time. Um, in the, it would have been in the early nineties, maybe before they, before they moved, I said, I really miss working here and you know, what a great time, what a cool place. And I really had a great, and a couple of then current TSR employees said, Mike, Mike, don't, 
don't wish that it's not like it was it's way different it's really corporate and you know the management is always questionable and you know don't wish that you were here because we're living through it and it's it's not uh, it's not the halcyon days that you remember so so that kind of disabused me of the notion of of, of that so um uh, so that was pretty interesting yeah uh you also have a racing game vic was saying did you uh, are building a new racing game and yes yes um there was an Avalon Hill board game came out in 1961. One of some, so early Avalon Hill board game called Le Mans. And, uh, it's a great, it's a great fun game. I was great back in the day, but it's pretty simplistic. And, um, I've always kind of been fascinated about by the Le Mans race or, or if you wish the French, Les Vingt-Quatre du Mont. Um, and I've been to France numerous times to attend the real race at Le Mans, which is, awesome in itself but in 1976 for the first time this was i had just months after i came on on board at tsr because my first day at tsr was march 15th of, of 1976 that june um and i had negotiate this when i took the job i said i've got a trip to france planned in june and and gary said yeah that's okay fine we'll work around it. anyway uh in france in the town of Tours, which is about 30 miles from Le Mans, uh, we were at a hobby shop and I saw these model cars, uh, model race cars, um, made in Germany or France. And I thought, Oh, we could create a, a giant blow up version of Le Mans if I buy these cars. And, uh, I was traveling with my friend, Jim Barber. We didn't have a lot of money. We were backpacking and had a, a rail pass and it was probably $80 or more, you know, in French francs, of course, um, to buy this, you know, set of cars. And I thought, if you don't buy this today, you're never going to see these again. And that turned out to be true. I've never seen anything like it, but I, I bought probably 14 of these cars and we brought them back to Lake Geneva. And then for the Gen Con nine, which was 1976 created uh, giant Le Mans. We had a four hour race and I took the basic game system and uh, expanded it, added a lot of Chrome to it and mechanical troubles and all these things that are not in the original game. And, uh, it was a hit, and we ran it a number of times. In fact, the highlight was in 1982. We did. People would say, "Oh, this is great running at four, six, or eight hours." But have you ever thought 24 hours like the real race? And uh, wouldn't that be cool? So in 1982, in the basement of the, the Dungeon Hobby Shop, um, on the main intersection downtown, uh, we ran it. Uh, we ran a 24-hour version. Started at noon on Saturday. We had 49 or 50 players. We had 20 race teams of two or three drivers each. We started at noon, went around the clock to kind of simulate the real race. And it was just tremendously fun. It was one of the greatest gaming experiences of my entire life. Um, and it was a success. Wow. We did it again 10 years ago. So we're bringing it out, and I'm going to run it at Game Hole Con with a couple of friends. We're going to do a demo. We ran it uh, at, at Gen Con a number of years, and we had a nice cadre of players built up. But then we didn't run it for five or more years and we lost that core of players and we've been ever since been trying to build it up people say oh geez i'm not gonna play a game that's gonna take six or eight hours well when you play eight hours you have team you have a team driver teammate so you're all there you're both there at the start and then the one guy takes over and the other player you can go off and have lunch or do whatever you want come back and shift but they don't realize we're we're running a four-hour demo at at game Holcon, and we have a fond hope that we can build up a cadre of players that we can offer it with team drivers and you know in the full in its full glory but it's People, they're hesitant to play it because of the time commitment, but once they play it, wow, this is really fun. When are you going to do this again? Same with Don't Give Up the Ship. Um, talking them into play is sometimes a little bit of, uh, they're curious about Don't Give Up the Ship because it's the other title other than Dungeons and Dragons that Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson collaborated right. yeah. on. 
fortunate to be the editor and they graciously put my name on there too. But once they play, don't give up the ships. Like, wow, we had no idea this was such a cool game. When are you going to do it again? So I run it at Gary Con and I'm going to be running one session at, uh, at Gen Con this year. It's already, I think, signed up full. So it's fun. Awesome. Awesome with that. Well, I, I don't know, Mike, if you have a, a, any dice near you. Do you have a 10-sided dice near you? Yes, he does. They always do. They always Never trust do. somebody who doesn't have a die 10 near them. So if you... If oh, you, unless he doesn't have it, then I just... Uh, in, the other, in, in the other room. Okay. <laughs> we can't trust him. We can't trust him. Now. You, you were giving him his platitudes. Well, we roll a 10-sided dice kind of... Uh, Randomly ah. determine how successful they are. Uh, but there's a, do you have a book nearby? There's an alternative nearby. version. That's Who right. was it? It was um, Dave uh, Zeb Cook. Zeb Cook showed us this. If you don't have a die, you need a D10. You just grab a book, you open it up randomly, and whatever oh, okay. the, the last, the, the the last, last number. number. Yeah, from one to from uh, one to ten. The page number. Yep, the last. So the last. Yes, yeah, because we just need a D10. So. Out, out of the DMG. He's doing it out of the. Is DMG. it out of the DMG? Yeah, just yes. open up a random page. Yeah. Yeah, just to satisfy your curiosity, I'm opening the DMG to a random page. Thank you. Okay. Oh yeah. Let's see what's on what's on the right hand page. Oh. Wait, give us the Oh I mean give us the page appendix. I'm too deep. No, give us the page yeah, give us the page number. We'll try to guess what's on the page, the topic. That's How about right. that? That's right. Okay, that'd be good. That's good. What page number is it? One ninety. One ninety. It's a ten. It's a ten. This episode is rated a 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. So 190, I'm going to say it's Appendix C. We're in the Appendix C. Yeah, we're way by 190. Yeah, we're in the Appendix C. All right, I'll just now, well, I'm just going to say an Appendix E. Appendix C. Appendix C. Random month. Wow, James. You guys are good. He's good. I'm not good. There's just well, okay. you've played a lot of games. I read the Dungeon Master's Guide, and you're forward probably more times than I needed to. So, so Mike, good. thank you for your time today. It was been an absolute pleasure. Uh, so, and again, while you're not on social media, he will be at Game uh, GameholeCon in that's in October. GaryCon, uh, you can also see him at uh, GenCon, which is <laughs> what August, right in Indianapolis. Yep, early. Yep. Yep. So. And hopefully he'll be at Dave Con early next year. Yes. Where we'll, well, where we're going to convince him to run B one with me. That's what we've just decided. Yes, correct. I thought he agreed to you it, know. didn't he? I think he agreed to it. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to rewatch. We'll it. have to rewatch it though. So I did not not rule it out. He did not rule it out. <laughs> that not, means acceptance, acceptance, compliance, like acceptance. Exactly. So <laughs> so for for GrogCon, I'm James and I'm Dan, and we'll see you next time on GrogCon. Take care. This is big. A pushy, a big production. All rights reserved.